Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the Direct-to-Video Connoisseur. This is Matt here. I know we, we've had a, a little bit of time off after a little bit of a hiatus, but we are we are back and uh, we have an exciting episode here today. And um, really special guest here, we've got Simon from Explosive Action on the show. So welcome, Simon. Welcome back. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And um, so our, our big thing today is we are talking about Gary Daniels, who um, the movie we're going to be discussing, Skin Traffic, when we review it, it'll be his 50th uh film on the site so he's going to join Dolph in the the 50 club here on this site which means that if you put their two together the two of them together they'll account for almost 10 percent of the movies we've reviewed at the direct-to-video connoisseur that's very impressive yeah so it's interesting because most people when when you ask you know like if, if you'd ask them who's who's got the most reviews most people would say oh Dolph of course he must have the most and then when you talk about like this the, who has the second most people think it's got to be someone like an Eric Roberts or somebody like that who's been in yeah. so many movies uh, they're surprised to find out that it's Gary Daniels but um I think you know he's just very pro- prolific you know in the uh the, the 90s and the 2000s well he's got uh I mean IMDb says about 75 credits um yeah. he's, he's yeah he's as you say pro- prolific yeah, he definitely got his work in for sure, and I think he was—he was somebody that, especially in the '90s, he just wanted to. It, it seemed like he was just like he—he he would do anything. He would, you know, he'd go anywhere in the world, just shoot anywhere as long as he could be in the movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, before we get into the film, I wanted to talk about your YouTube channel, just because um, uh, if people haven't been, uh, if you're not subscribed, uh, it's Explosive Action, and uh, it's really cool because you, you know a lot of times you'll you'll talk about your recent hauls or um, you know recent pickups that you've you've added to your collection, which is a really prodigious collection. It, it's pretty amazing um, that the, the stuff that you have both <laughs> from uh, for movies and you know uh, metal, uh, your your uh, you know your metal collection with like records and, and tapes and everything. Um, but one of the cool episodes that you did recently was you actually went out and kind of did a, a, a haul of, uh, uh, you know, for, for movies. Um, and, and one of the things I think here in the United States that's interesting, and, and maybe you've seen the same thing in Australia, is that even before, you know, the pandemic hit, uh, the sort of the in-person retail shopping experience was starting to diminish, that it seemed like online, whether it's Amazon or, or companies just selling their, their things online, that the whole idea of just going out and, and, and going to stores and kind of picking through the shelves 
it, it seems like it was diminishing a bit here in the States. Has that been the same for you in Australia? Yeah, it has. Um, probably not to the same degree, but um, there's definitely there's definitely shops that used to stock DVDs and Blu-rays that have either downsized or just eliminated them. So uh, we have Target here, just like you do in the States. They've dropped it entirely. Um, our big um, media shop is called JB Hi-Fi. They're sort of a Best Buy equivalent. They do electronics and they do music and movies. That, that depends on which shop you go to these days. Um, some of the key city ones, they're, they're still selling movies, but smaller shops are just uh, dropping them entirely or cutting back, and that's kind of sad. That's for the new release stuff. Um, in terms of, like, digging around and trying to find uh, used items, um, that's also becoming kind of hard. We have um, a chain of pawnbrokers here called uh, Cash Converters, uh, a lot of those have stopped uh, selling DVDs. Uh, it's it's getting kind of difficult, and I guess that's why I go for these these hunting halls and try and dig around a bit, try and find some gold because it is it is getting more challenging to find anything interesting. Yeah, it's interesting because you mentioned about Best Buy. Um, uh, I remember it was it was probably like six or seven years ago. Uh, so so a good about a time ago, somebody on Twitter posted uh, uh they went to a flea market kind of you know sort of hunting around to try to i don't know i don't know if if, if you have the same uh, term in in uh in in australia for that the i guess it's like a a market where people have their little it's like kind of like a sort of an, a generally an open air market but might, might not always yeah. but people have sort of their stands where they're selling whatever they're selling as a yes yeah, we, we definitely have those yeah and so somebody at this flea market was selling dvds from best buy they had uh, the Best Buy stickers on them. In some cases, they were even like, you know, Best Buy packages. Like they, you know, sort of packaged the movies together. And and he, this person saw tons of movies in there. And he was, he was guessing at that point that that Best Buy was downsizing their DVD selection, which it turned out that's what they've done. It's it's. I, I think they're pretty much the same as as like Target here, where it's like, just the very absolute newest releases have. Blu-ray or, or you know DVD releases, and then it, it's harder to get sort of the older ones, or it's you don't really have those racks of DVDs anymore that you used to have at, at newer places. Um, you know, you still go to uh, you know uh, we call them thrift shops here or charity shops where you can you know go through used DVDs and and try to yeah. find something, but even, even those are difficult now because it's like it's a, a lot of just you know sort of big release things that people just got rid of because they were downsizing. Yeah, exactly. I mean that that is something I keep running into as well. Um, I've got a running joke with uh, a few of my friends that every time we go to a um, to a charity shop, um, you've got to sift through mountains and mountains of copies of The Wedding Singer right. or uh, just any romantic comedies because they just seem to just breed in these charity shops. You, you leave two of them and then they turn into ten. Um, what I did notice recently, though, is... Um, I think you've got these as well. Um, yours are called Red Box, from what I understand, the, the oh, yes. DVD rental little boxes. Um, we used to have, you know, video rental shops just like you did, you know, Blockbuster and that kind of thing. One of our nation's chains was called Video Easy. Uh, all of their shops have shut down, but they replaced them with the boxes. And, um, you know, they did well, I think, for a little while. But then I went to the charity store just last month and saw mountains and mountains of dvds from those bins 
from those boxes and you could tell i mean they all had the same logos and there was just repeated copies of the same blockbuster copies that uh, i guess somebody emptied out one of these rental bins and then just took them to the charity store yeah, you know, it's interesting because I wonder if it's sort of the same thing that, like, the red box here in the U.S., like, they still exist, right? Like, so you go to, like, a, you know, grocery store or, you know, pharmacy, and there'll be one outside, you know. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yep. Yeah, and I, 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 I remember I signed up for my red box account because there was a, a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie that I could only get. I can't remember which one it was. It was, it was new at the time um, that I could only get in um, – so I have the account still. So they email me because they've created their own streaming service to compete with like Netflix and those yep. places. Yep. And and I think that's where a lot of those companies are going. Is that even even for a company like 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 a Redbox or Video Easy, where it's like there, there's really no overhead, right? You just put the box or you put the, the machine out in front of the uh, the uh, business and you know let the rentals happen. Um, even for them, they seem to be moving more towards streaming. So, yeah, that, that idea of physical media is just, it, it, it's, it's, it's just, yeah, it seems like it's shrinking even more. Yeah, it, it is. And I think general people's perception of physical media, like whenever I talk about my collection with people at work, their response is always, don't you have Netflix? I'm like, yes, we do, but I also don't care. I like to have things. I like to have a collection. I'm like, why? Why do you want these things? Uh, some people just don't understand. No, and it, it is an interesting. Cause I, like I used to have a collection, and a lot of my collections in storage. And I, I you know, once I moved down here to, to Philadelphia, where my wife and I live, um, yeah, I, I I don't have as much as I used to have. But I appreciate the there there. You know, since I started doing the the, the, the blog again and the podcast again, I mostly do movies through streaming because it's easier for me to get screen grabs. Um, you know, oh I, yes, of course, yeah. yeah. Because I, I used to have this more elaborate setup where I had a, um, a, a, a USB device that would allow me to plug in, you know, my VCR or the TV or even like the cable box or something, um, and I could I could get images off of anything, and and then of course the computer I was using had a DVD drive, which now you know computers that I use now don't have DVD drives, so now it's like I I, I only get streaming. But the one of the big things I miss by only doing streaming and not doing actual physical media is a lot of times when you, you go to the DVD, there's a commentary track or there's behind the scenes footage and you get, vine you know, like little little bits and pieces of what they were going, you know, what the, the people making the film were going for at the time that enhances a, a better understanding of what the movie's about. And with streaming, you don't get any of that. You know, it's just the movie and that's it. There's no uh, secondary audio or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. You, you definitely get more uh, value for money if you buy a physical copy and particularly if you're into I guess you could say modern collecting of um, of Blu-rays the the labels that are releasing a lot of the you know the horror films they're putting a lot of effort into the features and the presentation companies like Arrow and Vinegar Syndrome these companies they, they they're treating physical format um, movies with you know real love and care and uh they're just full of chock full of extras and sometimes you know a, a soundtrack cd will be in there and you know a 64 page booklet and all kinds of things and i think that's something i, I enjoy supporting as well yeah yeah you know one thing that really amazed me recently was um i had gotten like a promo copy of arrows uh, arrow videos robocop r release that oh they yeah did. Yeah, and 
it was amazing, um, you know, because the funny thing is, at that time, I was listening to that here in the, the United States, and uh, I think far away throughout the world, but there's this sort of this this tension between, you know, millennials and baby boomers that, they, you know, they were kind of fighting yep. with each other about how the, the state of the world. And what was fascinating about the RoboCop things, there were a lot of interviews with people who were making that movie, and, you know, they were all baby boomers, they were all, you know, born in the 50s, um, but they had this the, the, kind of the same like energy that millennials were bringing to Twitter, you know, as far as like social justice uh, concerns and, and causes. Um, and it was kind of funny to see that, that like, you know, a, a lot of the things that kids today think of in terms of like, you know, um, you know, being anti-corporate, being, uh, you, you know, you, you know, kind of understanding like this sort of corporate structure and, and being against uh, sort of those corporate ills. It's funny how a, a movie like RoboCop was probably, uh, you know, kind of planting a lot of those seeds and they didn't even really know it, you know, that, 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 and, and you don't get that by just watching RoboCop. I mean, you can kind of get some of it from watching RoboCop because you can see some of the, the themes in there, but when you're actually hearing them talk about it, that the people who made the film talk about it and how excited they were about trying to get these messages out there, uh, it, it does, it enhances the whole experience. You're, you're not just watching the movie, but you're, you're finding out like how the people who made it, you know, what they wanted to do with it. And yeah, I agree with you, especially like Arrow. Um, you know, what, what, one thing I've noticed Arrow does is they will put some of their collection to stream on services like Amazon Prime. And I think that kind of just gives you a taste of like what you could get from them. Um, and it, I know for me, it, it brings me to their website and I'm, I start looking up different things that I want to buy because I'm like, oh, you know, I, I saw one of the movies in that collection on Amazon Prime and I get the whole collection or something. So, yeah, I, I, I think that's one thing that's kind of cool is that I think maybe that's what we're going to see for physical media is these sort of more like boutique enterprises that that's exactly yeah 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 just for the collectors people that that want all of that stuff to go with it that that's what i think is going to happen i think i mean if i go to any shop now i I can quite easily get the latest marvel action film film on uh dvd blu-ray or 4k and i can't imagine that going away for five years but i think i think um for most other maybe not top 10 movies that come out in that year, we're going to see less and less physical releases. Um, but hopefully at the same time, we'll see more um, sort of niche boutique labels releasing, um, picking up some of the slack that, um, you know, the bigger companies like Universal uh, will, you know, they're going to stop doing it eventually. Uh, Disney, for example, they're putting all their money into Disney Plus now. And they've already said they're going to focus a lot less on um, 4K releases. Um, I presume that'll filter through to the rest of their market as well at some point. Yeah, yeah. I have to assume, especially with Disney, where Disney's mindset, and of course now with, with the pandemic here, especially in the United States, with the way the, the theater industry has been really hit by, by that. But I think even before that, the theater industry was getting hit hard. And Disney's mindset, it seemed like, was, you know, we've got these properties like Marvel, uh, Star Wars, you know, Pixar, whatever, you know, and then of course their own um, cartoons that they've been making live action features for. And in their mindset, it seemed like was, let's take over the, the, the theater. Let's see if we can get 60% of the screens, you know, with our, with our movies and sort of freeze out. So like if, I don't know, like, you know, um, uh, Warner releases a, a, a DC movie, it doesn't get as many screens. You know, the Batman movie kind of gets frozen out that way. And one of the things that they were doing as a result of that is they were really starting to squeeze out independent theaters because they were vaulting a lot of the, especially the Fox movies that they produce, they, they purchased, like, you know, something like a Say Anything. So uh, a, a local indie theater that wanted to show Say Anything wouldn't ha- be able to have the rights to it, um, you know, for like a special night screening or something. 
and and it does seem like I think they're kind of wanting to do the same thing with their their you know with with the other movies is that they've got Disney Plus so they can funnel everything to Disney Plus. Um, you know, kind of the way they used to do, like, you know, like we're, they were only going to sell Pinocchio on VHS for a short period of time, and then they'd pull it, or, you know, 101 Dalmatians. It sounds like they're trying to do the same thing with all of their properties, and I wonder if eventually it's going to be a situation where, like, you can only buy Black Panther on, on Blu-ray, you know, new, uh, for a short period, and they're going to pull it and, and put it strictly on Disney Plus most of the time, and then every once in a while they'll put it out for collectors to buy, like they used to do with their VHSs. Yeah, that's probably what will happen, and I imagine very limited runs as well. Um, there's just not going to be the demand for you know mum and pup and and the kids to to go and get these movies and put a disc in. Um, they're just going to keep enforcing and and suggesting that uh, people stick with the streaming service because there's a you know a, there's a lock in. They they pay the same you know nine ninety five or whatever it is a month, and they're just going to keep doing it. Um, but once they buy one DVD for fifteen dollars, then there's no more money. So it's it's to you know the streaming company's best interest to not release a physical copy, as, as annoying as that is. But then for people like me that watched um, you know the Luke Goss film Michael J. White uh, The Hard Way, which is yeah. on Netflix, there's no copy of that. I can't get a copy of that film. I have to watch it on Netflix, and now I can't put it on the shelf with my other films, and that's. I find that really frustrating. Yeah, and you know it's interesting too. Yeah, because I was I was going to say the same thing. Like, um, uh, you know, it, it, the the Irishman, you know, a Martin Scorsese yeah. film. It's you know, I mean, Martin Scorsese is one of those directors that people like to have all of his movies. Um, or like you said, I mean, the hard way. The interesting thing about the hard way is that that wasn't even a Netflix original. It was released by Netflix. Netflix was the 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 studio or was the company that was releasing it, kind of like a Lionsgate or something like that. So even just by being released from Netflix. And so, yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, if you don't have a subscription to Netflix, you can't, you, you can only watch it once. And, and the other problem too, is that you, you, you don't get any kind of commentary tracks. Like you said, you can't put it on your exactly. shelf with the other movies. Um, it, it, and, and so that's another thing too, is that, that idea that, yeah, if, if Netflix is releasing it, that's it. It's, you know, it exists, um, you know, only through Netflix. And I guess they, 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 they did release the, um, their Stranger Things series on DVD. So yeah, they do they eventually. Do that. They do it eventually for some things, but not everything. Like a Stranger Things series and the Daredevil series is about the first two things I can think of. But, you know, the, the Indonesian um, film uh, The Night Comes for Us, there's no release of that. Um, right. That's a real shame because, you know, I, I want to set it next to the, the Raid 1 and Raid 2 films on my shelf. Yeah, and 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 now you're, we're getting more and more of these these Netflix action releases where you you've got um, you know uh, what was it um, Extraction was that the one that was released? yeah I think that was it yeah. yep yeah and and um, uh, you know Six Underground those kinds of things yep. where it's like they're these big movies that you you would expect to have you know and and, and normal part you know people would would get the Blu-ray for that and want all the extras and all that. One thing I've noticed is with with our cable company is that you can buy movies for the the cable box, right? And I guess you you I guess you you have them as long as you're you're subscribing to that cable service as long as you don't as we we say cut the cord, um, and those come with the extras that you normally would get with a DVD. It's like um, it, it sort of entices people to spend the twenty dollars to to buy the movie for their uh their cable box device to get those extras. 
Um, but again, with Netflix, you don't get any of that. You can't, you know, you can't, I don't think you can buy any, you know, I don't think you can buy like the hard way, for example, on a, on a, a, a your cable box or another device like that. It's, it just, it just exists with Netflix. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. It's just a, just a streaming copy. It's, uh, it's there, uh, for the whims of Netflix. If they decide, you know, that they want to take it down or they lose the rights, then well, it's gone. Maybe it goes to a competing, um, streaming company that I don't have access to. And then that's even more annoying. Um, it's uh, it's just not an ideal situation. And and when you when you mentioned you know six underground, as soon as that hit Netflix, I remember seeing DVDs of that on eBay. They were obviously bootlegs, but right. they were selling and people were buying them. So there's obviously still a market. People want these things on a physical format. Yeah, and you know, like we talked about with these these boutique companies like Arrow or Vinegar Syndrome, um, where they're kind of doing limited runs. And I think with the mindset for those companies is they they kind of produce it as they need it. I think, and and I, if if you if we start to get more of that sort of on demand approach to to these. You know, like a company like Netflix, they could probably make a lot of money if they just even had their own personal website up where you could go and order a copy of the hard way. And, um, you know, I, I can't imagine that it would really cut into their bottom line in terms of people uh, getting their service. I, I, I mean, I could see maybe if, if it's like, you know, with the Irishman, if people could buy it right away, maybe they wouldn't bother getting Netflix for that. I think that, that might be different. But... I think something like the hard way is something that it's almost like Netflix could sell the, the, the prospect of buying it by being able to stream it first and people liking it and saying like, okay, you know what? I, I'm going to buy this. It seems like it could work in the opposite direction for some of those movies where people watch it first by having their Netflix account, you know, and again, most people, like you said, they, they pay for their streaming service every month. They don't really think about it. They just keep paying it, whether they watch movies on it yeah. or not. Yeah. Yeah, it's, and so the, it's such so, a small amount of money. Just you know, it's it's the price of two coffees or something a month. So you forget about that you're even paying it. Yeah, and and so then you know, if if you do watch the hard way on there, maybe you think like, okay, you know what, this is something I'd like to add to my collection. And if they're only producing so many DVD copies of it anyway, it, it I don't think you know, it, it feels like it might be something that could enhance their bottom line. Uh, it it'll be interesting to see if they start doing something like that because I think. You know, there was a lot of success with people. People, there was a lot of buzz around them selling Stranger Things on DVD. I remember they they yeah, created exactly. a, um, yeah. I think people really liked the casing that they used. It made it look like a VHS, and it looked like a like a kind of a worn VHS as well. And yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, I picked up both season one and season two of those. Um, they're in different style. Um, one looks like a a US uh, big box in the in the the cardboard carton kind of style. The others in more of clamshell style. It comes with all kinds of features in it, but the problem is that they haven't done that for season three. There's wow. no copy of that, and we've nearly got season four coming to streaming, and there's no physical of three. So I wonder if they've abandoned that approach. Yeah, it. it, it I've been reading a lot of things about Netflix and how they're they're sort of approaching a lot of these kinds of things with with their the way that they're doing TV, um, and 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 it does seem like they're they're constantly evaluating if is something cost effective for them, and you know they talk about with TV series where it's like the moment they feel like that TV series isn't cost effective they cut it immediately, and you know in the United States the whole process of TV was that you wanted a TV series to go in the past and. Uh, on on you know standard television, the series needed to make it to like however many seasons, like six or seven, so then it could be pushed into rerun syndication on local television stations. 
for Netflix, they don't care about that because they're not going to ever have a, a show on syndication. It's always going to just exist on Netflix. So if it's three seasons, four seasons, it doesn't really matter to them how many seasons it is. And probably it's actually better for them if it's smaller because once somebody has finished binging it, they'll be hungry to watch something else and they could just move them on to the, you know, they can use the algorithm to move them on to the next thing. Exactly. Yeah, and so that might be one of those things, too, with Stranger Things, where they may have found that people buying the DVDs were not as affected by the algorithm, that they couldn't use the algorithm to move them onto other shows that they wanted them to watch. And so they've either delayed it or you know, maybe the mindset is that they want people to start watching season four before they sell season three. So that by the, by the time you, you, you get season three, you've already started watching season four so that they can still, again, use the algorithm to move people on to the next thing, as opposed to if they buy season three first, then they're going to wait and watch season four. I don't, I don't know if maybe there, there's some sort of calculus there for them that it, it makes more financial sense. Or it might just be with, with the pandemic, maybe they just can't produce it right now. No, it's true. I didn't think about that. There, there, are, there aren't delays from a lot of these labels um, trying to get things pressed. There's, there's issues physically getting people to be able to go in and press the discs, um, you know, with um, social distancing restrictions and that kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, I guess that is entirely possible. Or, yeah, maybe, I mean, I haven't held up, I haven't lost hope yet. Maybe uh, when season four kicks off in, I don't think it's very long from now, it's a month or two, um, maybe they'll announce a physical copy for, for season three. That would make me very happy. Yeah, I, I think, it, you know, I, I mean, one thing I've been hoping is that they release a physical copy of The Irishman, which um, I, I haven't seen anything about that yet. And, um, you know, like Amazon has the search uh, reply already set right. up that you, for, 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 for people looking for it. But um, it, it, you know, I, I don't know too, like if there's a certain uh, point where, where it's, it's more economically feasible for them to release it on DVD. Um, I know one of the things I was watching, I, 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 there's a, um, a director, uh, Jay Horton, who um, has done some DTV stuff that I've re- reviewed on the site. He has a YouTube uh, channel where he talks about the process of making movies and and putting them on places like Amazon Prime, and he was talking about when to pull a movie from sort of the the streaming uh, Prime yeah. and, and and having it be you know rental on demand. That there's a certain shelf life where it's better to just um, have it be a rental and have people pay four dollars or whatever than to have it available on Prime for the streaming because of the the compensation you get. And I wonder if there's a similar calculus when it comes to when something should be available on DVD for Netflix versus keeping it only on Netflix and people only being able to watch it there. Like maybe there's a saturation point where people are still watching The Irishman. Um, I don't know. I mean, considering how long that movie is, I don't know if people are still like going for it, but it might be like, okay, (laughs) you know, we, we need people, or maybe the same thing with Stranger Things. Like they want people to keep watching it and discovering it on Netflix for a while. And then they decide, okay, now it's time we can put it on DVD. Well, what I've been finding uh, a lot of the times um, is uh, the last bastion of physical media is going to be Germany. Uh, that's just proving itself to be more tr- more true every day. Um, if I can't find a physical copy from Australia or the US or the UK, if I look on Germany, they've got it, and it it just seems to be it just seems to be the last place that there's going to be copies of films that are in physical format. Um, and uh, you know, as well as that, what I've been noticing a lot of uh, lately is um, more and more burn-on-demand discs coming out of uh, the U.S. 
um, which for a collector, it's just, I mean, I, I don't like the idea of paying premium money for a BDR or a DVDR that I could have made at home. Right. It's just, it, it feels really lazy to me. Um, I mean, I know that the limitations of, of, you know, a DVD run, they only have to be a few hundred copies to be, to be worthwhile. So I don't understand why anyone does DVDR print runs. It just seems really quite lazy. Um, and it's just not, not conducive to, to collecting. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it. I, I wonder if, if, with the success of these companies like Arrow and Vinegar Syndrome, if some of these other bigger companies like like Netflix, um, or you know even like Disney or whoever, maybe catches on to that success. And and I, I feel like Disney already has has had that model because that was what they used to do with their 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 cartoon uh, features was that they would release them in these sort of limited edition versions. Uh, every every so often and i mean i think there could be a a huge advantage to that for for some of this some of the more popular things to just be like okay you know for three months we're going to allow this to be bought on blu-ray or something and you know and and i think that would be that would be really you know that'd be a compromise yeah and i think if you know if they you know i I think part of it too is you you, again you know i mean when you think about like if you're on youtube and you post a uh an episode of a you know an nbc program it, it'll, it'll get taken down within 24 hours like somebody will catch it that quickly yep. Yep. so you have to feel like these companies also see that there is a sort of a, a secondary market or there's a market out there you know if people are selling their dvds um you know as dvdrs on on you know sites like ebay or something like that you, you would think these companies must see that there's a market for it and they would want to just sort of gobble that up and and sort of make the money themselves instead of letting a, a, a proprietor, you know, sell DVDRs of them. But I don't know if maybe it's just the, the calculus is there that it's just not worth it for them financially right now. Yeah, I mean, that, that could be the case. But I, I do see some small changes. Uh, I know that, um, and I bought some myself, the horror streaming platform Shudder. Oh, yes. They've, um, they've started releasing physical copies of some of their films. Um, even that new series of creep show you can buy that on a, a blu-ray in the states um some of their releases i've found you've got to be careful they are um they're on burn on demand discs but um most of them seem to be actual legit press discs um for these little shutter horror films and i think that's pretty good yeah i i think you're right there i think these companies are rec- – I think like Shudder is one that I think they they probably recognize where their market is, you know, that a lot of the traffic that comes to them, it comes via like, you know, uh, sort of, you know, uh, sort of viral grassroots social media. Yep. Uh, it, it, and so they must go and see that these the, – the, pe- the people that are, are you know, posting on, on Twitter and, and places like that about their movies – have Instagram accounts where they're showing off their collections of, of things. Exactly. And yeah, and it, it must be, you know, they must, again, you, you know, when you think about how quickly a, a, a movie can um, get, you know, think about how quickly copyrighted material can get removed from YouTube from some of these companies, they must be paying attention to some of these other trends and seeing a potential, you know, uh, way to make money there. Yeah, well, I hope they I hope they do, and that um, the future is not as bleak as I'm predicting. Maybe we will see a, a bit of a turnaround. Um, maybe the the fact people are being at home um, a lot more now 
um, definitely I know that myself and a few of my friends have been quite amazed when we've been selling old DVDs on eBay. Um, they are selling very, very quickly. There are people out there hungry for DVDs. And I'm not just talking, you know, the latest or Arrow movies, just things that I've upgraded three times over, 15-year-old DVD. They're selling on eBay. There are people out there that want physical copies now at home. Um, maybe that's a, an Australian thing at the moment. I don't know. Um, but I'm definitely seeing the second-hand market online for physical media is, is increasing. The VHS market has gone completely bonkers. <laughs> yes. In the last yeah. last three or six months, that's gone from crazy to just nuts. <laughs> yeah, I was completely shocked. I went to um, this, this, you know, this uh, sort of secondhand shop here, here in Philadelphia that uh, um, sells like, you know, secondhand books, uh, movies, uh, music, all, all that kind of stuff. And um, I was looking through their VHSs, and of course, you know, you've got your, your standards, like, you know, the, the two-tape set of Titanic that you see, like, five yeah, or six of. Yeah, it's always Titanic. <laughs> right, exactly. And, um, and, but then they had a copy of Savage Streets, you know, like an 80s oh, yeah. movie with Linda Blair. Yep, yep. And I looked on the, the, the price tag, and it was $40. They wanted $40 for it. I'm like, How, this can't be right, you know? But then I noticed underneath it, they wrote the word rare. Like, I'm supposed to be like, oh, it's a rare video. But... People are, are buying that. They are spending that kind of money for some of those. Um, it, it is amazing. But to your point about the DVD section, I, I do think there is a part of people that are, you know, they're 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 kind of tired of, of what's available in the streaming services. Like that, you yeah. know, there's so many movies that just are not that you have to rent. That's the only way you can watch them. They're they're not available to. You know, they're not part of any kind of streaming package, and you know, I think like like my my wife wanted to watch Cocoon the other day because uh, uh, yes. well, yeah, yeah, I think that you could only rent it, and you could only rent it for like ten dollars too. It was like, or you could only buy it or something. It was it was really weird. Like there was no streaming service that had it, and I think people look at it and they're like, you know what? Why don't I just go on eBay and see if somebody has a copy of it and just yep, you know, have it on my collection. It's like it's a movie I like. I want the movie anyway. I, I think there there is starting to be more of a turn towards that for sure. I mean, if you if you go back just a couple of months ago with that um, that mini fiasco about Gone with the Wind, yeah, um, that that made its way over here as well. I mean, our streaming service services did not stop showing that it was still fine. It never went away. Like I think it might have gone away in the states for a brief period, but I was seeing DVD copies of that selling for up to a hundred dollars on eBay. Wow, I, I never even thought of that because my, my I, I got that on DVD a long time ago. It's probably like it's like the very cheap like um, cardboard, you know, where oh, it, snap a case. Yep. Yes, exactly. Which I have to assume that thing's in storage. It's probably the 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 cardboard is probably all warped now, and it's probably in in, in bad <laughs> shape. Uh, but it's also it was the DVD. It's a two sided DVD. Oh, flipper. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but I never even thought of that kind of thing because yeah, you think of a movie like that that. Um, Yes, it, it had a lot of problematic elements to it that were really bad, and you watch it and you think like, okay, yeah, there's so many things about that that are really bad. But from a you know cinematic history standpoint, I think we don't know what to do with a lot of these movies. Um, you know, Birth of the Nations an even bigger example where it's mm -hmm. like all of the things that Griffith does in that movie from a, a technical standpoint are amazing, but at the same time you've got the Ku Klux Klan as heroes as you know uh, you know it being depicted in a heroic light, which is horrible. Um, so I think, you know, that's another thing I never considered is that, you know, as we start to kind of figure out the way that we can place these movies, that we can figure out how to figure out what's valuable in them and what, 
and, and parse out the parts that are really bad and understand that those are bad. People are going to probably start coming back to these movies a little bit. But it, if you're HBO or a company that has the rights to it, it, it's it's harder for you to put it on your streaming service and deal with the backlash than it is for somebody on eBay to just sell a copy of it or for, you know, a, a small scale person to, to, you know, so that I never thought of that, but that makes a lot of sense that it's, there, there's going to, you know, there's going to be a space that's going to be carved out for these kinds of movies that, that have that problematic history. Um, you know, I think of another yeah, exactly. one. I, I also saw um, a, a bit of an uptake um, in uh, there's the Disney old Disney film, uh, that they've since just rejected Song of the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when Disney Plus launched, they made a claim that we're going to have every Disney movie on there except Song of the South. That's not on there. And I started to see the Laserdisc copies of that fetching way more than they ever did on eBay because that didn't even make it to DVD. Right. That's, that ended on VHS and Laserdisc, and now people are wanting to see Song of the South again. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, it's, it's you know, I mean, you know, you think of a movie like... um. Uh, the Searchers, I think, is the um, the, the the John Ford um, movie that is, you know, kind of also. It's it's not so much about um, it's it's more about it, it, the problematic aspects of it have to do with um, how they were dealing with First Nation people in the film. Yeah. And I think it's kind of the same thing where it's like these movies have some sort of cinematic value for people, and there's there there are aspects of the movie that are are important to sort of the history or legacy of filmmaking. Um, and then it's just a matter of, we don't know right now with the current language that we have, the current, um, you know, sort of ability to manage these things. We don't know how to deal with the rest of it, I think. And at, at some point we're going to figure out, you know, at some point we're going to, you know, figure out what to do with movies like, like, like those. And at that point, it's going to be a question, I think, for companies that like the big companies like Disney, um, you know, do, do, is is it worth the risk for them to have a movie like that in their their catalog? That's you know when they deal with the backlash. Um, but then for collectors that that you know, despite you know knowing that it, it has a problematic uh, past to it, that kind of you know for them, you know, I think there are a lot of people out there that sort of can watch a movie and say, "There's a lot of things in here that are really bad," and and I'm recognizing the really bad parts. Um, and then there's some parts of this that you know I think are important that I, I want to recognize as well. And I think it's where like kind of a secondary DVD market will come in for those kinds of things. Is that you know they're uh, you know a company doesn't want to deal deal with the backlash, but a seller on eBay will. And I yeah I never even thought of that before. That like yeah my copy of Gone with the Wind that I have, which you know I watch Gone with the Wind and I see all the really bad in it. I see you know how many really bad things are in it. Um, but that that thing could fetch a lot of money because people are you know, they're going to want to watch it just to know what the movie is. They, they, you know, the movie existed in it, in it and they, they, people are still going to want to see it. Exactly. And, and removing something from existence is, is not going to help educate people on the problems, you know, of a film that's nearly 100 years old. You, you, you need to see what it was to, to understand, you know, why you don't want to do that kind of thing now. I mean... It's just about having a historical perspective. It's not endorsing the behaviors. It's just, you know, this is where we were then. Look how far we've come. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things was um, AFI's 100 movies, 100 films um, list in the late 90s came out. They had Birth of a Nation on there. Right. And then when they re-released the list, when they, they updated the list to include movies that came out in the 90s, they had removed it and they replaced it with another Griffith th- uh, film, Intolerance. 
And I think it kind of speaks to that point that a movie like Birth of a Nation, we just don't know what to do with it. We, we don't right now. We don't have the ability to, to, to mitigate the fact that Griffith was doing massive things with, with cinema at that time that nobody else was doing. At the same time, you know, we, we can't have the KKK as, as conquering heroes, right? It's, it's, not, a, yeah, it's exactly. not a message that people want out there. So you know, at some point down the road, maybe we will get to a point where we can, you know, have a good conversation about a movie like that. And, that, you know, that it can exist in that space where you can sort of understand what it is. But right now, it just seems like there just isn't that, that capability. And so, yeah, what do you do with a movie like that? Because you're right. You don't, you know, Birth of a Nation should exist. Like, it, it existed. It, it happened. And there, even at the time it was made, um, Griffith faced a lot of backlash. That's why he made Intolerance was almost as a, a reaction to the backlash he got to that movie. Um, and and same with like a lot of you know John Ford's movies as as a director, it, you know you he he's considered one of the most influential directors of all time. But a lot of his westerns have a lot of problematic aspects to them in the way that he dealt with 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 Native Americans in those those films. And and so it's like, well, you know, are we going to just throw out all of his movies, or can we figure out a way to understand that like there's some really bad stuff in here that you know? And I I think eventually we're going to get there. I think it's sort of like a very new thing, you know. I think. Just think about Birth of a Nation being on the AFI 100 list in the late 90s. Even at that time, you know, movies that had a lot of really bad aspects to them were sort of forgiven for their bad aspects. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe the answer is going to be these niche labels, the the boutique yeah. labels. I mean, they know that there's a market for these movies and they don't have to have the, you know, the large risk that the um, the film studios themselves don't want to bear anymore. I mean, if you look at, although it's not particularly about you know uh, films that um, yeah might be a bit suspect these days, but um, companies like uh, Kino Lorber that seem to have massive access to Warner's and MGM's libraries, and they've been just releasing these catalog titles that, if you went back to the start of the DVD age, you know an MGM title came out on MGM DVD. That's not really the future. I think it's it's the boutique labels are. Yeah, like Robocop. Why is why is Arrow releasing Robocop? That's you know that itself seems strange to me. When why are they releasing more rats? Yeah, you know, these these big, um, big studio films. Um, but that's sort of I guess the future, and maybe that's where you will see some of these um, some of these titles coming out on smaller boutique labels in fancy boxes with a, a thousand limited run and a little card that says. We don't endorse the message in this movie, but we present it for historical accuracy. Well, yeah, and also, too, maybe one of the advantages to Blu-ray and with these companies like Arrow and, and, and Vinegar, especially Arrow, where Arrow, like, you know, you think of their, their RoboCop, where they just had so many interviews with the cast and crew. You know, maybe that's what you do is you get some, you know, film historians and you get some, you know, yeah. some, some professors that, that, that can, can sort of give it the, the movie a cultural context and they can really discuss about like the problematic aspects and really deal with them in this sort of a nuanced space that you, you, you can't do normally, right? Like, so, you, you know, in a Twitter battle, back and forth Twitter argument, it's just, you know, these you know, people just sending off these, you know, 140 character yeah. barbs whereas you know arrow could put out a movie like you know something is really bad is, is birth of a nation you know it really has you know but they could really give it a context where you could watch you know panels discussing the really bad aspects of it 
um, you know, and add that as a piece to it. Or same thing with Gone with the Wind. They could even do it with Gone with the Wind, and and that that might be the 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 the, the solution is like you said they'll, they'll you know maybe put a message saying we don't endorse the things, but also having people discuss the problematic aspects and really you know, calling the film to task for the bad parts of it, or even calling the, the society at that time. And maybe even talking about the film's legacy, they could say like, you know, Gone with the Wind was so popular that it perpetuated uh, a lot of these, you know, this more institutionalized racism on a, um, on a national level because it was so popular. And they could talk about sort of the legacy, the bad legacy as much as the good legacy. That might be the other thing too, is that a company like Arrow that's so good at that, where they're, 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 adding all of these features to the film they could add things like that that could give the film more context and so then yeah like you said we don't lose the movie forever but by the same token arrow's not saying that we we think this movie's great and we're, we're endorsing all the aspects of it exactly and and i mean if you look at the first example i think of is a uk company that's uh, called 88 films they put out um mainly horror films and martial arts films but They've got documentaries on their discs that are sometimes longer than the film. Yeah. Um, like a 90-minute, 80, 87-minute, you know, sweet spot horror film. And then they've got a 110-minute long documentary interviewing everybody that had anything to do with the movie. And then, you know, the entire sub, subgenre of, of that film and its, its you know, its, its siblings in, in, uh, in filmography. Like, they, they go seriously deep with some of their documentaries, Um so that, you know that that's definitely something that could happen with with some of these films that are otherwise shunned. Yeah, and 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 what it could do is like you said, because I think you, you're right when you make the point that if you just eliminate the movie completely, um, you know, because you yeah. think about like in America right now, one of the big issues is like, you know, there was the the, the you know the the Nazi propaganda film Triumph of the Will mm-hmm. that I think you know when I was growing up in the '80s, they would talk about that movie and they would talk about what you know you know how that was used to sway uh, popular sentiment against the jewish people in, in germany at that time and i think it, it eventually they stopped screening it in schools because it was so you know it was, it was considered so vile but you know then you kind of look at what's happening now with the way you know with trumpism and in sort of the ways that uh you know uh, immigrants were depicted it was they were using some of the same themes as in that movie and so it's almost like you don't want people to lose a movie like that because it's it, it had an important historical significance in showing people how how easily propaganda had. exactly exactly yeah these yeah, things and I, exist you, you have to acknowledge that that a, a movie like this was made and just because people want to see it again doesn't mean they are agreeing in the views you it just needs to be it just needs to be not forgotten so that we can learn from these things yeah, I think that's important. I think I think maybe that's the space. Maybe that's the thing to think is that 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 you know Disney streaming doesn't really have the capability, or or HBO streaming or whatever streaming services don't have the capability to put a movie in the proper context because it, it, all they can do is show the movie. That's it. Whereas yeah. DVD, Blu-ray, with with the amount of space that they can put on there, or like especially with companies like Arrow who do multiple disc sets. You've you've got the ability to give a movie the proper context, and um, and and you can also you know when you're making the movie you, you know when the company makes it you know they've they've got the ability to think in terms of like you know whoever's watching this has the, the the ability to watch these other parts if they want or they can leave it they don't have to see these 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 pieces that give more nuance but at least we did at least we 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 added these pieces in to give the film that so I mean maybe that's what the the 
another space where we have to think of physical media as still having a purpose that it, it for some of these movies that there, there, there are just too many issues with them by having them in streaming, just having them out there with streaming without being able to give them the proper context that, you know, physical media can, can add features to something to give it more of a context. Exactly right. It, it definitely does. I mean, if you look at the, you know, the, the quote unquote solution that they came up with for the gone with gone with the wind to get it back on streaming was to put, you know, a, a three second wall of text. I'm sorry at the front. And, and that's it. There's, there's not, there's nothing else. That's more of a legal obligation than anything else. Yeah, I mean, you think about what a company like Arrow could do with it with a Gone with the Wind. Um, you know, I mean, they could talk yeah. about the historical significance. They could talk about the fact that you know Hattie McDaniel won an Oscar for that, and she couldn't even sit with the rest of the cast because of segregation, even at the Oscars in Los Angeles. You know, we in the United States we think of segregation as only being something that existed in the southern part of the country, but here they were at an Oscar, you know, you know, the award ceremony, and she couldn't even sit with the the the, the um the rest of her her cast there. Right. There's a whole you know, there are a lot of things that could be, you know, and even just that, you know, that the, the, the legacy of, you know, that, 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 you know, um, uh, people of color could only be certain roles in movies at that, that time. And that you couldn't have, you know, Hattie McDaniel be the star of a movie, just, you know, all of that stuff could be featured more prominently in a DVD set that, you know, could, could talk about more of that, you know, that, that background or more of that, you know, give the film a much better context, I think. Uh, yeah, I agree. And, and I mean, and it's possibly that it it has been been done. I, I know that there there was a few years ago a pretty substantial Blu-ray box set that was put out about the film. But the point is that is that was a few years ago. When when this streaming problem happened, um, I happened to walk into my JB Hi-Fi and they actually had signs put up saying "Gone with the Wind" is out of print. They specifically put these signs up because people were asking them because they wanted to buy the copies. But there is no physical copy of that movie in print, at least in Australia at the moment. Yeah, it probably happened here in the States as well. So, it, yeah, I, and, and, I mean, I can kind of understand taking it out of print and really trying to figure out, like, how do we, we manage it? And I think that that's, that's probably, you know, the, the, the reality is there are a lot more movies. There are a lot more Gone with the Winds out there than we want to admit, I think, that there are a lot more movies exactly. that were made. Yeah, and, and so it means there's, there's a whole section of movie out there that, you know, I mean, you know, just thinking about you know just here in the United States our our history with, with racism I mean there's a there are a lot of TV shows there are a lot of things that that you know you could look at and say okay these things you know they they're very problematic and they they need to be handled in the proper context so yeah I think you know Gone with the Wind is just the tip of the iceberg but maybe that's the key is that that physical media is the thing that can kind of uh, you know, uh, give these films the proper context they need so we don't have to just throw them all out completely. But you know we can understand that they yeah, that they have all of these issues with them. Exactly. Um, I mean the the same thing seems to be with uh, television as well. I mean I I was completely shocked um, when it was just after the Gone with the Wind problems that I saw. Um, are you familiar with the the British show Faulty Towers? John oh, Cleese. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, there was an episode in that one called The Germans, and the BBC streaming platform removed that episode. It is just such a knee-jerk reaction. I think they had one or two complaints about how it doesn't suit modern, you know, interpretation of British life, and so they pulled the episode. And John Cleese got on the back foot on Facebook, and I think they ended up getting it back on. But, I mean, I don't have that problem. I've got the DVD box set. Right, right. right. I, I think that's the thing, is that, like, with streaming, it's like you, you, you don't have the ability to, to sort of 
create context and nuance because it's just that the episode exists as the episode. Um, so I think, yeah, it's going to be one of those things where people find more and more of those films that they're, they're just not sure what to do with them or these episodes of TV shows that they just don't know what to do with them. And it, yeah, so it's going to be, yeah, they're, they're probably going to get pulled initially and then, you know, people might react and they might add them back in. I guess that's the other thing with streaming services, right? Is that you can, you can pull things and, and add them back in as, as you see fit, which is, uh, the, probably our big issue with Netflix is that they can do the same thing, exactly. whether it's problematic or not. You never really own something. It's never really yours. You're just renting it, and it's just like, you know, renting a Blockbuster. One day you go in there and you can't rent your favorite film anymore because they've, you know, recycled the stock and put something else in. There's no real difference. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, maybe that's a good place to leave this conversation, um, but that because I think this, the film we're about to talk about, uh, Skin Traffic, uh, mm-hmm. is one that I've only been watching on streaming. Do you, do you have a copy of Skin Traffic, or is that I one have, you're watching on streaming? Well? Yes, I have the DVD right in front of me. Oh, perfect. All right. Excellent. So, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the reasons I thought it would be great to have you on this episode to talk about Gary Daniels is because I think, you know, he, you know, thinking of like that 90s, early 2000s action period where I know, um, you know, your your site Explosive Action covered a lot. And, um, it, you know, Gary Daniels was such a fixture at that time. Uh, and and then I think when 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 you, you talk about actors like Van Damme and Seagal, who kind of fall back into the DTV mode where they were yeah. originally on the big screen. It felt like Gary Daniels might've been one who got squeezed out a bit there, that he was just starting to get big. Um, and then companies were like, well, why would we have Gary Daniels in this when we can get Jean-Claude Van Damme or something? And exactly. um, yeah. yeah, it's kind of too bad because watching skin traffic here, I'm reminded of just how good he is. Like just how, how, how um, what, what kind of quality he brought to the, to the action game. He's definitely the best part of, of this film. I mean, that's for sure. The, the film, I'm sure we're going to talk about it. It's got some issues. Yeah. Um, but his, um, his kickboxing in this one, he's really, actually really quite good in this. I mean, he's, I don't know, but he must be 60 or 50s by now, but not entirely sure. But he's, um, he's kicking ass in this one. Yeah, it, it's an interesting thing, right, when you think about, like, um, you know, actors who, because I think he was born in 63. Yeah, um, 63. So he, he's definitely in his 50s for this. And it's interesting because, yeah, you think of like, you know, like like him, um, Van Damme, I think Dolph Lundgren, they've kind of like really tried to maintain their physical stature. Whereas you think of like a Seagal who, um, you know, uh, it, it's sort of, they just kind of add layers of clothing to him because he's sort <laughs> of becoming less and less in shape. But, you know, Daniels is someone who I think wanted to show, like, I'm still able to do this kind of movie. Please, you know, keep casting me in these lead roles. And um, I, I think he was trying to show that I can do every bit that th- these younger guys can do. He was very convincing. And I, I tried looking for obvious stunt doubles. and I didn't see any with him. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know one of the things interesting because you know the last time you were you were on the podcast we talked about Avengement with 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 uh, Scott Adkins and it, what a great it, film. Yeah, it's it's amazing, and it feels like at least in the DTV realm, it feels like England, the UK is really putting out really great action stuff. Um, I mean, this film was set more in the UK, but um, mm. you know, Adkins stuff with Jesse V. Johnson, um, Ross Boyesque with um, with uh, uh, Stu Bennett. Um, you know, they're 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 putting out a lot of really great stuff right now, and this just seemed to fit in with that. That, that you know, seeing Gary Daniels running around England, um, beating people up. It, it, there was just it, it, the film never seemed to go too far before it it, it ramped up the action again. Yeah, no, it was pretty much full-on action the whole time. Um, I think it its main its main uh, issues are just down to budget. 
it's pretty obvious that you know some of it's quite cheaply filmed um there's a lot of cg blood squibs you know it's um a few extra dollars could have polished it up but it's um it's still a lot of fun yeah, and the other thing too, it, it, I was really shocked at the end. And uh, um, spoiler for anybody that you know uh, watching this, but the, uh, you know, Eric Roberts spends most of the movie just sitting in one location. Yeah. I was shocked that he actually got a second location in the film. I thought maybe <laughs> he was just going to be only in that one. And like th- he does a scene with Michael Madsen, and neither of them are in the same shot. And you can kind of just tell that yep. this is being, you know, that that it's just like we got them for whatever time we've got them. And so, okay. You know, Michael Madsen will do his his scenes this day, and and Eric Roberts will do them. And so there are a lot of those kinds of elements to it, where you're just like, okay, you know, okay, obviously Michael Madsen and, and Eric Roberts didn't shoot their scenes together, or if they did, it doesn't look like they did. Yeah, that that actually reminded me of like watching an old early '80s Godfrey Ho ninja mashup <laughs> movie when you've got Richard Harrison on one end of the phone talking to a guy in a completely different movie on the other end of the phone. Just, yeah, yeah, I think. What was the one? I think it was was it Ninja Strike Force? There's one where he's he goes to the door. Um, he actually goes like, and, and so it's like he he he's supposed to be talking to this person in their apartment, and and he's just like on the other side of the door, and so it's like the person <laughs> opens the door and they're talking and he's on the other side. And it's like, uh, yeah, it, there was there was some element of that in this where, you know, you you know Eric Roberts is not talking to any of these people, but it it does kind of feel that way. And it's such a, I mean, we've got to talk about the cast. You just reel it off. I mean, obviously, Gary Daniels. You, you've got Mickey Rourke that looks like he'd rather be anywhere else but in this movie. <laughs> right. Um, he's doing such a good Steven Seagal sitting in a chair impression in this movie. That's what I got from it. Yes. Yeah, he, just he gets needed, up. Just needed the donut beard. Right, exactly. I mean, I think the only time he gets up, right, is to go get this di- this disc out of yeah. a, of a safe for Gary Daniels. I was surprised he even did that. Like, you know, I was surprised he didn't just be like, "The safe's over there." You know, here's the code. You know, um, you're <laughs> yeah, all I'm set. <laughs> yeah, and, and Michael Madsen um, and, and Daryl Hannah they have scenes together. Yeah. But you know, other than that, I mean, I don't think Michael Madsen has really any scenes with anybody else. Um, I was struggling other- to really struggling to determine the point of michael madsen in the film like i i enjoyed seeing him with daryl hannah and um you know again spoiler alert how how their relationship ended i I fell on the floor laughing so hard um it was just so completely random Um, but you know then you've got you know eric roberts um you've got jeff fay i think jeff fay did a really good performance um he, he yeah he was really good in this i thought yeah, and the funny thing with Jeff Fahey is that you you see his name at the beginning, and the film just keeps kind of keeps working its way through. And it's like, when is Jeff Fahey going to show up? <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I think you know one of the things I think we talk about with like someone like an Eric Roberts, who he does have a little bit more of a part in this film, even though he's only in two locations. Um, yeah, they they get a lot out of his part, but we always think of someone like an Eric Roberts who makes the most out of a small part. But Fahey really does a really great job with the small role that he's given. Yeah, he really does. It was very believable. Um, I think he's quite an underrated actor. Like he, he's done quite a few two um, thousands era sort of sci fi channel action films, and he's always good fun in those. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I love like his PM stuff. Uh, was the Underground was one, and then of course the Sweeper, yes. where he plays you know C. Thomas Howell's dad in that one. Um, it's a really great scene there. 
yeah, he, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see if, if this is something that he does. I mean, he probably has done more of this, and I just haven't seen it yet. But, um, you know, it, it feels like a lot of actors are taking the Eric Roberts route. Um, you know, Michael Pere is one I've seen doing that kind of thing. Oh, he's in everything. Yeah, <laughs> it's like they they're they're all kind of trying to stack up as many small roles as they can. I think it, you know, I think they probably see with, with with Eric Roberts where he makes a good living off of that, where he just is in as many things as he can for a short period of time. Um, I think his wife is his his agent, and so she gets him booked on as as much as possible. Oh, well, that makes sense then. He he does appear to be in like every second director video action film. It'll have and Eric Roberts. Yeah, his. Um, so one of the funny things is this show here in the United States called My Cat from Hell. I don't know if they they show it in, in Australia. I don't know that. Um, <laughs> no, so it's it's a reality show. Um, this guy Jackson Galaxy, who's kind of a cat whisperer, he um he goes to people's houses where they have cats that are just you know they're they're unable to to live in the house. Like they're they're either like tearing up the place or they're oh, going yeah. to the bathroom everywhere or they're just you know scratching people all the time. And so I guess Eric Robertson and his wife, they, they where they live in, in L.A., they have a lot of animals. And they had a, a cat that was blind, I guess. Um, and she was having trouble dealing with one of the other cats in the house. So, you know, that was it. You know, he was on the show, this guy Jackson. But, you know, it was, it was Eric Robertson, his wife. And, um, you know, Eric Robertson was only on the show so much because he was off shooting things at certain points. So some, some of the time it was just the wife. But from what I understand is that the wife tries to get him booked on these reality shows as a way to sort of keep inflating his profile. Like he was on the, the addiction show um, here in the United States as well, where he, he, he kind of passed off that he was addicted to smoking marijuana, which he really wasn't, but he kind of, you know, created that illusion to be on the show. Um, and I guess like he wasn't creating enough drama and his wife, um, uh, they, they, they called his wife and said, you know, listen, he's not creating enough drama. He needs to do stuff or we're going to kick him off. Um, uh, so he he was on um. There's a podcast called uh, Eric Roberts is the fucking man. Um, I don't know if you, I don't know if you've listened to that podcast no, before. I, I will now. <laughs> yeah, they um the, the uh, Doug Tilly who does um uh, No Budget Nightmares. Um, he and his friend Liam they they do the show. And they actually were on a panel where they got to interview Eric Roberts and he talked about some of these things, uh, which was really fascinating to hear <laughs> inside of it. But it also gives more context when you see him in something like this where it's like. You know, who knows if where, where he was even shooting these scenes, um, you know, where, where this was being done. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, he, he's in there. He just does his scenes in the office. And then I was completely shocked that he was in the airplane hangar at the end of the film. I didn't think he was going to make it there. His, his role really reminded me of the role he had in uh, The Expendables. It was that, mm-hmm. like, slimy bad guy. He's really good at doing that. Yes, he is, yeah. I think he, he really – I think he really picked that up from um, – what was that 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 killers video? Uh, Mr. Brightside, I think it was called, or um, I can't remember what that song was called. Uh, but it was like a, like kind of early two thousands. He was in that video, or maybe oh, mid okay. mid to late two thousands. Oh no, no, not familiar with that one. Yeah, and he was kind of playing a similar character, and apparently, like that video was really popular. I think people just like saw him in that and just thought, well, let's just keep making him play that character as much as we can because you're, you're right. I mean, he's really excellent. I mean, it's just like the moment he picks up the phone and starts talking to Gary Daniels, it's just, uh, it, it, it just kind of enhances the film in a certain way that it wouldn't have if he wasn't the bad guy. And, and it helps that he's just got this smile the whole time. He <laughs> yeah. never stops. He's just got this evil smile. They're like, Oh geez, don't, don't do that. He's going to shoot you in the knee. Don't do it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And he seems to be um, enjoying it too. Like his, his career in doing, a lot of these direct-to-video films, be they action or not, but yeah, you know, he, he's not going the Bruce Willis path, right? 
Yeah, yeah, which I think is important, right? Is that Bruce Willis, it's like, um, I think there was a Vice article recently, or some magazine did, did an article recently about, um, uh, I, 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 it wasn't Vice, I was thinking Vice because of the movie Vice he did, but um, oh, there's yeah. an article recently about, uh, a film critic did about how he just kind of shows up in these movies and would rather be anywhere else. And, oh, he's terrible. Yeah, and, and I think of Eric Roberts, how it, it, you, you don't get that sense from him. It, it, no, it, not it, at all. Yeah, I like that. I think that it does it does enhance the movie. And Michael Madsen almost kind of you, you feel like you'd get more of that from him too, but it, it doesn't seem like he he has the same mindset either. It seems like he's also like I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm a professional actor and I'm gonna do this scene. That's it. Yeah, it, it, I don't think he gets quite to the extent of Eric Roberts, and maybe that's just <laughs> sort of his his range. I mean, um, but he's definitely not just there for the paycheck. You, you can tell he's he's trying. He's he's um. He's uh, he's committed to the roles that he's in. Yeah, I think there's something about that sort of that professional actor. I remember um, uh, seeing a documentary on Cary Grant where he, I guess, like, I don't know, it was Sophia Loren he was dating or Diane Cannon, somebody that he was with who was like an actress who was coming up sort of more in the, um, you know, later period where they, you know, it's about getting the right roles and doing the right films. And, and they, they couldn't understand why he would just do the movies that he was doing um, these like, you know, kind of screwball comedies and whatnot when he was considered this really great actor as well. But his mindset was he came up through sort of the vaudeville sort of the, you know, the uh, uh, English uh, theater system where it's like, you're a professional actor, you, you act mm -hmm. and, and that's yeah. how you make money. And I think that's how a lot of, I think it's how like an Eric Roberts or, or Michael Madsen sees it, where it's not about me getting the right parts. Um, I think Gary Daniels is sort of taking a little bit of that. Cause I've noticed he's been doing, more, more films, but I think Gary Daniels has a, a different stake in it, right? Where he can't just be, he can't just show up in a movie for five minutes and be Gary Daniels. He's got to show off his his uh, action chops and show that he can still be an action lead. Um, you know, he he doesn't have the luxury of doing like Eric Roberts or Michael Madsen, where it's like I'm a professional actor. I'm going to come in and do these scenes, and just having my name on the tin is probably going to be enough to push this film for uh, a little bit further. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when when you are uh... You know, known for being an action star, you've got to bring something. Um, otherwise, people are just going to be disappointed and then not buy your next film. Right. Yeah, I think uh, Michael J. White put it best in an interview I saw recently where he said, um, once you kick someone in the head, you get known for kicking people in the head. Um, <laughs> and so that's, that's, I think that's but, but I think also Gary Daniels takes pride in it. I think Gary Daniels, you know, he wants to show that he can that he's, you know, like for him, it, I mean, I think he does want to be uh, known as an actor as well. I think they all do. I think, you know, um, I think I saw Scott Atkins in an interview recently where he was talking about, you know, not getting the respect that he deserves as an actor. Uh, I think they all want to be known as actors. But by the same token, I mean, he's a, you know, he was a competitive kickboxer. And uh, I think he also said he, he, he trained to fight um, Muay Thai a little bit later on. Yeah. Um, and so there is that competitive uh, spirit in there where he wants us to see that he still has it. He can still be an action lead, which I think it, it enhances a film like this where you're able to say, like, yeah, you know, get after it. I want to see, you know, all of these scenes. And it, it, it makes it that much better to have some, a, a lead like this who's actually really engaged and wants to pull off a good film. Exactly. Um, just because just you brought up Scott Adkins, have you happened to have seen the trailer for his new one, Dead Reckoning? I have, no, I haven't. I haven't seen that yet. I, mean, I, I keep seeing people are posting it on uh, on Instagram and things like that. Yeah, I think this is an example of um, of of Scott saying, you know, tr trying to do something that's not being the the action guy. Um, the the trailer doesn't fill me with a great deal of confidence that it's my kind of film, 
But when he when he shows up, he's putting on the full Boyka Russian accent um, as being the bad guy of the film. But he doesn't seem to be kicking any tables, so that's a shame. Right, right. You know, it, it's it, I think the thing with with Adkins that I always appreciate is it felt like Adkins came up in kind of the same tradition as we as action fans came up in, where it's like I'm watching Van Damme, I'm watching Seagal, and all of these people, and it's oh, almost like when he. Yeah, it doesn't feel like he wants to put on the same kind of show for us. Have Have you been watching his YouTube series, The Art of Action? Yeah, I'm, so I'm behind. Um, I, I'm about halfway through the Dolph one, so I haven't had a chance to watch the Seagal one yet. Oh, oh the Seagal one is 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 priceless. Um, but <laughs> I'm still amazed that he managed to make it happen. I mean, knowing how Seagal is, but but what I love so much about. Um, the start, like the the first ten minutes of every single one of these, he's just he's a gushing fanboy yes. every single time. Like the Cynthia Rothrock one, he's just his jaws open the whole time. Yeah, and I I think it it, it it's something I think we lost in in action movies for a period because we we only had these these older guys who were kind of just going through the motions in a lot of cases. Um, you know, I mean, I think Van Damme is one who doesn't necessarily want to go through the motions. It seems like he's trying to put out more mature films. and Yeah, and sort of, yeah it, which doesn't always work in the sense that, like, you know, the movies are more like um, character studies than they are uh, action films in some cases. But but like like Gary Daniels, when you watch some of his, he still wants to show off that he can do some of these things still, um, which, I, which I appreciate. But, yeah, I think Atkins has really infused a lot of life into the, 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 the action market because – He's he's saying like this is what I want I wanted out of an action movie when I would watch it and I'm going to try to deliver that um, which I think is always exciting to see. Oh, it's very exciting, and I mean, not wanting to turn this into yet another Scott Adkins discussion because I could go on about that for ages, but um, I mean, the stuff he's got coming out like he's coming out in I think two weeks. He's got a new one called Seized, and that's an Isaac Florentine film again, and it's got um, Mario Van Peebles in it like. These things are just epic, epic little B action movies, and I'm so happy that he's doing them. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, I, I think um, the, the, the um, I, I cannot remember the name of the one that he did with Isaac Florentine more recently, where it took place in like the American Southwest or kind of near Mexico. Um, oh, um, which one was that? Um, close range. Close range. That's it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's like you know the. His stuff with Isaac, it's interesting, like, because, you know, he does stuff with Isaac Florentine and um, Jesse V. Johnson. Yeah, exactly. And it's just, it, it's all high octane. It's all just like, let's see how many great scenes we can put in um, in, in, a, in in these films. And, you know, I, I think that's one thing about Skin Traffic that I did like is that I felt like, you know, for the budget it had, it definitely didn't have the budget that those mm. uh, Florentine or Jesse V. Johnson ones were. I, I don't think those ones always have the, the highest budgets either. It just seems like they, they kind of know what they're doing with those budgets. This, yeah, this film, I think, made, yeah. yeah, I think this one had more constraints to it, but it, it did seem like it wanted to maintain a certain action quotient that, that you know, okay, we've got a certain amount of time. We, we need to have another fight scene or we need to have another shootout or something. And, and I think that was, was a really good part of it that, that it, it, and then I think what, what was good is it, it seemed like it leaned on those stars like Michael Madsen or Eric Roberts yeah, to get us did. through the periods. It's, um, I think the tone of the film, when I was watching it, particularly the first, say, the first act, the tone of the film made me think of a mid-2000s era Seagal, like The Foreigner. Yeah. That, was, that was where I was thinking, this, that's, 
you know, we're in, it may as well be Bulgaria because it's always <laughs> Bulgaria when it's Seagal. And, you know, there's the pretty girl with the Russian accent and it's just, it just felt like a, a mid-2000s Seagal film, um, but with actual proper martial arts and kickboxing. Right. It, one thing I thought that, that this movie did well in terms of that aspect of it, sort of like the, um, the, the, you know, the, the pretty girl with the Russian accent, was that by having, um, you know, Dominique Swain, you know, who's, it was, you know, acted and stuff here in the United States, and I think she was most known for, um, she did a, there was a version of Lolita that came out in the late '90s, um, that she, she did the starring role in for that, um, but it seemed like they, they kind of did a some work with her where you kind of tell with like the makeup that she was wearing and, um, and the outfit and stuff where it was like, they didn't with the Seagal movies, you know, where, where they have the sort of the, the, the human trafficking aspect of it, they just get like the most beautiful woman and they put her in the hottest outfit. And then she falls in <laughs> love with, with Seagal. And it's like, he's like saving her from this life. Yeah. And, 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 and she, she's so happy that she wants to be his concubine or wife or whatever. And this film by having a, you know, an actress like Dominique Swain, who's, you know, an American actress. I, I mean, the Russian accent, of course, there were, there were points where, um, especially me who, um, you know, works in the field of teaching English as a second language. I think, um, her Russian accent. She used too many articles. I think there was too many. Uh, she was, <laughs> you know, there was uh, too many thes in there or something. But um, I think it, it it added an element to it where this was not just sort of like this beautiful, glamorous woman who just happens to be in this this field that she needs rescuing from. Um, there there was a, a an edge to it. There um, there was a grittiness to uh, you know the the way that they had her look um, that and and. It, it it felt a little bit better, and then of course the way that they they mitigate it, of course, and I, I'm spoiler alert, but you know, giving away it's that it, it's not this it, it it's not just that she and um, Daniels ride off into the sunset together and and live happily ever after, which I thought was a good twist on that because th- th- that trope of of the the you know the white slavery and the the hero comes in and rescues all you yeah. know rescues the woman, it, it's so tired, and we see it a lot in Seagal movies. I think that it, Seagal seems to be the one where you see it the most, but. I thought that this movie dealt with it a little bit better, which I, I appreciated. Yeah, I agree. I think I think um, their approach to the topic was uh, was far more mature than you'd, you'd get in in some of those those mid era cigar films. Yeah, and I, I always joke that th- this kind of thing is like what I call baddie in a can, right? Where it's like, um, <laughs> you, you know, there, there's really no need to, to to develop a baddie who you know is is. Either you know working as you know in white slavery. Um, I always think there's a few different job. You know, uh, animal poaching is another one. It's like where yeah. you, you know you know you see the trapper right with his with his bear traps, and it's like you just want to see the hero beat the crap out of him. You know, it's just it, it's just you know because it, it, you don't really need any kind of plot exposition. And here you know again these two Russian guys that are uh, you know mistreating these women and having them in this this uh, gross brothel area. It's like it doesn't really take much work for us to want to see. Daniels go in there and clean them all out, you know. Um, exactly. Uh, I mean, you, you got the part in the, in the school, and you know the girls are you know no more than thirteen or fourteen, and you instantly hate the bad guy. You may not have even seen him yet, but it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's pre pre baked hatred. Yeah, exactly. I think it works. You know, in a ninety, you know, I think this movie was like ninety six minutes long. I mean, in a movie that's it's in that that ninety minute range, um, you know. Yeah, somebody like an Eric Roberts, you maybe need to develop him a little bit more. But um, it's nice to not have to worry about developing the baddie. It's just sort of, you know, just just go for it. And um, we're just, you know, we're just waiting for Daniels to be unleashed. And I think what was really nice was that he delivers. That that these these fight scenes that he's in, they 
they deliver what we're hoping for. I think that's one of the things I think, again, too, with this sort of baddie in a can, you know, or like you said, they're pre-baked uh, baddies um, with the Seagal movie is that it's just sort of like, OK, you know, if he beats these guys up, that's fine. Um, and, and it's almost like he can kind of get away with not beating them up as, you know, it, it, not making it as exciting as, as as we want, because we just want to see this guy get his come up. And so if it's just Seagal just grabbing his arm and breaking his arm, that's enough for us. And so I thought the fact that, that they, they didn't lean on that with Daniels, like they still made these action scenes and these fight scenes really high quality, I think was, was really important. And boy, did Eric Roberts get his comeuppance in this one. That's <laughs> another, another scene where I was just howling with laughter because it was unexpected. I, we were in the warehouse. I figured it would just be, you know, a, a quick couple of shots or kick him in the head and he goes unconscious. No, this was this is up there with the liberating scene in um, Savage Dog. Like this was this was crazy. It's great. Yeah, I you know that's a good point. When you mentioned that about Savage Dog, I didn't even think of that. That like, you know, because Savage Dog was a, was an interesting movie in that you had like these these sort of these fight scenes that sort of you know it, like kind of you know off and on he'd be doing these fight scenes, and then it's like the second half of the movie, it's Adkins Unleashed. Unleashed. And, yeah, and this film had a similar quality, right? Where he 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 has the initial action scene. The the the, the situation goes bad. We don't really know exactly how it goes bad until we're, we're shown after. But then he he kind of goes underground, and there are these scenes where like these Russian guys that are are dealing with the, the human trafficking. They're kind of pushing him around, and 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 you're just like wondering when he's going to take care of business. And then it just happens. He just does it, and that's kind of it. And it's, it, I think it's a little bit longer than, than Atkins is unleashed in, in Savage Dog, but it's still that same idea where it's just like, okay, that's it. We've, you know, we're, we're, we've, we've sort of set uh, Daniels in motion, and he's just going to keep taking care of business. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it sets up the plot devices, then you can just sort of sit back and watch with glee as uh, everyone just gets taken apart. Now, now thinking, I was looking on, on, on his... On, um, uh, Daniels is IMDb, and of course, I think everybody right now is sort of at a point where they're not doing a lot of stuff, or they're not having a lot of stuff released, except for Scott Atkins, who, for whatever <laughs> reason, he still pumps out three movies a year, despite... Um, <laughs> Must have had um, them ready in the can. Yeah. yeah, I think he was saying, because he had Dolph Lundgren on his show, on his YouTube show. Oh, and- yes, yes. They, they got uh, stuck in post-production. They're almost finished on that one, I think. Yeah, I think they started shooting it and then they had to stop or something. And then they kind of were, were kind of get back and doing it sort of socially, you know, doing it in a way that, that, that socially distanced. I know I've been seeing productions on, on, on you know, like Instagram, places like that where, you know, people are, are, are shoot, you know, showing behind the scenes things where they are finding ways to do it. Um, now that I think we have a better sense of how people can catch uh, COVID-19 that, you know, they can figure out ways to be safe. But, yeah, they talked about that. Like Castle Falls was one that I guess that they were supposed to be shooting this year and they had to stop it. So maybe maybe next year, maybe everybody else, it seems like they don't have anything coming out in 2020. Maybe for Atkins, it'll be next year that they will have it. 2021 will be a year where he has trouble getting stuff out. Well, um, Gary Daniels has got um, at least two for 2021 yeah. at this point. Um, the one that I'm the most excited about, um, I don't know if you've seen the poster for it. It's called The Gardener. Yes. And it's got um, it's got Robert Bronzy in it, the uh, the Charles Charles Bronson clone, uh, with, with Gary Daniels playing a guy called Volker, and the poster's awesome. Um, and obviously he's going to be playing you know second fiddle to to Bronzy, but that's not a bad thing. Yeah, it, it and I I I was you know it's interesting because he um I think the most recent film he's had that actually came out was um was I Am Vengeance where he played the bad guy. Yeah. 
Um, and, and, and there he had really great scenes. And so I, I have a sense that in, in his mind, you know, he wants to kind of keep doing um, – I mean, he does seem to be trying to branch out and do other stuff. Um, when I look at some of his, his – other, I mean, he did that Wrong Child movie that was um, you know, a oh, Lifetime yeah. TV movie here in the U.S. So he, he is trying to branch out and do other things. I think maybe he is seeing it as like at some point he's not going to be able to do this kind of action stuff the way he wants to do it. And, and maybe that's his mindset. It's like if he can't do it at the level he did it in Skin Traffic or, you know, I Am Vengeance where he had those really great scenes as well. I, I wonder if his mindset is if I can't do it at that level, I don't want to do it at all. I don't want to have a whole bunch of stunt doubles, you know, doing my scenes for me and, and that kind of thing. So it, it, it'll be interesting to see if he, if he pivots out of this or if he just can't, you know, you know or, or what it looks like down the road. Because he is, I mean, I, I guess, you know, he, he's, 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 what, 57 now, I guess. So he's... Um, you know, at some point, I guess it, it has, to, you know, the law of diminishing returns comes in and it, it's, it's it, it, you know, age kind of takes its toll. But I, I do wonder what it's going to look like in the future for him, because it, it it seems like in this movie, at least in Skin Traffic, he wanted to show that he still really got it. Yeah, and he definitely does. I mean, and, and you're right. I mean, the the future for his style of um, of action, I mean, he will probably have to to change at some points. I mean, you look at Dolph Lundgren, he, he does more shooting and punching now. There's, there's less, you know, um, sidekicks and doing the splits or anything like that. Uh, or if you look at, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he, he plays the sheriff, you know, um, but he can still, he can still be an action star. He just might have to sort of change his approach. But uh, yeah, like you say, he, he may not want to do that. Well, that's the thing too. Like with Dolph, was that he got a hip injury or something like that, and just he couldn't recover, you know? Because you know, you know, when you get older, you, you have trouble recovering. I think mm-hmm. too from, and, and that's the other thing too is that you know Scott Adkins can just go out there and tear it up, and if he you know injures something, you know he just. I mean, I mean, you know, the same thing happened with Rothrock and and um, Richard Norton. You know, they talked about for them in the in the um, uh, in the 80s. You know, they would get injured on the sets of like Hong Kong films and just keep going. Um, you know, now it's like when you, when you get, get past 50, it's like, uh, you know, you, you get those injuries. They don't heal as quickly as they did at, at that young age. So that's the other thing, too, is, I mean, the, the, the fight scenes that he did in skin traffic, they were ones that definitely, you know, if you make the wrong twist or the wrong turn or, you know, if a stunt guy moves in the wrong direction, you could easily, you know, tear a, 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 a ligament or something like that. They were definitely very believable. I mean, you could tell he was he was not faking anything. They were real fights. Yeah, and I, I think for, for Daniels, I think, you know, when I think of, like, his really best stuff, I mean, you know, when he came on with PM Entertainment, um, you know, he was someone that, like, it's interesting when you watch some of the early PM films where he's got these small supporting roles, I think they must have looked at it and said, boy, we've got something here, we've, we've possibly got something, um, and they started casting him, you know, we think of the three R's with him, right, Rage, Recoil, and um, uh, Riot, uh, yep. you know, it, and 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 he kind of you know PM Entertainment goes under in in 2000, and he does kind of founder a bit. You know he he has some roles in the 2000s, but I think you know he had trouble maybe finding where his place was after PM because he had only just started to make a name for himself. And um, yeah, I mean he did some good ones. I mean he did some you know there there were some that 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 um uh you know kind of had 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 bigger names. But um so the one I'm thinking of that he he did the um. I don't know why I can't think of the name of it. I'm going to page through the um, the anime film that he, the live action Uh-oh. anime, Fist of the North Star. Fist of the North Star. Yeah, he talked about how that one he he expected it to be bigger, 
And then when he saw what it looked like in post-production, that it was more, um, there, there, there were elements that were more unrealistic to it, you know, like where, you know, people getting punched in their faces being moved all over the place. And, um, yeah. He, when he when he saw what it ended up looking like in post, he realized it wasn't going to be something that that audiences would connect with, and I think he was disappointed. But I think he felt like that was going to be his movie, the one that was going to be the thing that that kind of cast him into the stratosphere, and he would be on the big screen all the time. Um, and, it, and it does seem to work like that with a lot of these DTV stars. That there's that one film that they think there's going to be that one film that gets them there, and it doesn't. And so then they just kind of have to kind of keep languishing in the DTV world. Yeah, you can see that, you know, he was hoping it was his version of, you know, The Punisher or something like that. But, um, yeah, it didn't, didn't quite get there. And, you know, he moved on to Heatseeker and Rage. But, uh, you know, that, that's good for us. We get some good films out of it. But um, he's, he's, yeah, didn't, didn't really get into the stars like I guess he hoped. Yeah, and I guess that's another thing that's interesting is that, yeah, we think that, like, big screen success makes a career. And I, I think with someone like Daniels, and I don't want to talk about like the end of his career because he's still got movies to make. He's still, you know, he's still, I yeah. mean, he's, he's younger. It's funny because we, we think of him being in his 50s. He's kind of on the younger side compared to uh, the other guys that are in there doing it. Like, like Seagal, he's like, like a, I think he's like 10 years younger than Seagal. Um, so, you know, you know, we don't want to think of it like the, the end, but, you know, when we think of the career that he's had, um, I mean, he's given us a lot of really great films. And so, even though he didn't get those big screen roles that we would, you know, that, that he would have wanted, I, I think you know his career overall has been a successful one. I think there's been a lot of really great films in there that we can look at. I agree, and I, I think he's he's sort of got like a a longer filmography version of someone like you know Jeff Speakman. Um, you know, Jeff launched into the stratosphere with um, you know the perfect weapon, and that should have set him up, but. Um, you know, a series of things happened and movies like Street Night and The Expert didn't set the world on fire and he ended up in sort of director video for a while. Um, it, it feels a little bit like that with, with Gary. Gary's somewhere between sort of Scott Adkins and, and uh, Speakman in, in, in the style of the films. that he, he sort of reached for the stars. He didn't quite get the big perfect weapon style film, but he's then continued anyway with with plenty of plenty um, direct-to-video, direct-to-cable action films for, you know, two more decades from that point. Yeah, and I think, too, with Gary Daniels compared to Speakman, is that it sounds like from what I've heard about Speakman was that he, he wanted a lot of input in how movies were made, or he wanted, um, he would demand certain things, you know, be in movies, or, or that, you know, script changes were made. And I feel like Gary Daniels never really did that. Like he, you know, he was, you know, he might've had his input on how he, and, and there are a lot of films that he did the fight choreography for and things like that. But it feels like, you know, if he's making a movie for somebody, he's going to make their movie that he's going to go in there and, 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 and do professional work. And not that Speakman was not professional, but I think I heard that he, that that might've been part of why Speakman got kind of frozen out a bit towards the end. There's that um, people didn't always want to work with him because he always wanted to say how the film was going to go. Yeah, uh-huh. he, he kept trying to, um, you know, in, insist on his his approach of martial arts, you know, almost as a as a teaching mechanism in his films. And um, like, yeah, they the producers weren't really on board with that. But yeah, I, I think you're right that you know, Gary Daniels is is a professional actor and he's there to make a film and get paid. So you know, you you do what you're asked of. Yeah, and I think the story surrounding him is that I think it would, or the story that he told was that he went to the Philippines. 
and pretended to be a movie star. And that's how he got cast in like uh, the secret of King Mahi's Island and final reprisal was that what um, great films. <laughs> yeah. It, they're, they're fantastic. I mean, I mean that, that again, I have to go back to that, that you're, you're finding King of Mahi's Island. Um, it's like, that was like always like kind of like a Holy Grail movie, right? That we, when we were all doing this in the uh, yeah. mid to late two thousands, you know, it was like, when is somebody going to find secret of King Mahi's Island? And so when you finally found it, it was like this, this amazing thing that, that, that like, yeah, this holy grail had finally surfaced for us. I was I was thrilled to find it. It was um, it was definitely one I was looking for for ages. And then, yeah, I, I, I got to say I had to take one for the team in, in terms of how much I paid for this tape. But <laughs> I, I approached it from almost a film archiving point of view. It simply wasn't out there. You couldn't see it. Um, and now, you know, my copy I've, I've seen it um, sort of floating around the internet a bit because I did share it out there. I'm sure Gary doesn't care at this point. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm just happy that people will be able to see the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think the copy that I watched on YouTube was somebody that had, had pulled it from your copy. Um, yeah, that's it. It's, it's got all the telltale signs of, of being my, um, my Japanese tape and that's fine. It's, it's, it's out there and it's, it's not a, you know, a cheap $2 film. It's actually got a bit of budget in it. Um, you know, it's, it's, a a Jim Gaines directed film. I mean, he took over from, from Leonard Hayes that I think sort of saw what was happening on, on the, on the production and went, I'm not having a bar of this. And so big Jim Gaines took over, but, um, you know, they, they were trying to do a, a, um, Indiana Jones style film. And I think they really succeeded. Yeah. It, it's funny you mentioned Jim Gaines. Cause yeah, it, it, in, in that sense, it's like the film has this one, element as being like kind of the first Gary I think it's the first Gary Daniels film I think I mean it's either that one or Final Reprisal but I think he did that one first yeah um, IMDB says Final Reprisal's first but I mean oh, okay. IMDB is not always right right so oh, yeah I mean, is it has that I guess it has that that um that 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 aspect of it that it's it's one of those first but also for for philippine action film fans um there's that other aspect of it that it, jim gaines directed it who is you know jim gaines is such a, a mainstay yeah. in all of those philippine action movies so it, it it has more than just the fact that it's a gary daniels you know a rare gary daniels piece but i don't know how many films jim gaines directed um you know but so it, it, it i can't imagine he did that many um so that's a, oh, another cool aspect of that film yeah and, and the whole thing just simply looks like those shot in the philippines films like it's got um from memory it's got the same you know waterfall that um was in every bruno matai film like it's it's just right at the right time yeah it, it, it it's 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 kind of a, it's an amazing thing you know those those philippine action films especially like the i think jim gage it definitely he kind of takes a little bit more from the italian uh tradition with, with how those were directed um, yeah. when, when you watch that one it has that feel to it of like those italian like i don't want to say rip off but you know kind of like those they, <laughs> you know, like they're they're biting on, a, on on an established property and and doing it in a certain way um yeah he definitely gains uh, you can tell because i mean he's worked with bruno Mattai. i think he worked with margariti as well like he's you know he, he kind of is taking that style from them yeah exactly right um and I think if you, if you look at Final Reprisal, which was also one of the shot in Philippines ones, that 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 for me is a a double-barreled shotgun of awesome because one, it's Gary Daniels in the Philippines, but two, it's directed by Teddy Page, um, and Teddy Page did pretty much all my favourite shot in the Philippines films like Phantom Soldiers and Blazing Guns and 
you know, Black Fire, Blood Debts, Double Edge, all of these great films, and he did one with Gary Daniels. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a really cool aspect of Daniel's career when you look at it. Kind of, you know, he starts in the Philippines and does those movies, um, which, like you said, yeah, he does the the the, the you know one that, that has the the sort of the, the added aspect of being a, a Jim Gaines director. But like you said, yeah, T- Teddy Page, someone who did some really great ones there. Um, you know, he worked with him as well. Um, then he moves on to Hong Kong. You know, and he does movies with uh, you know his film with uh, uh, Jackie Chan. Um, you know, uh, City Hunter. Yeah. Um, so he really kind of gets all of the pieces. And, of course, you know, he works with PM Entertainment, which we, we talked about. And so, I mean, he did um, one of the Blood Fist movies with, with Don the Dragon Wilson. Yeah, number four. Yeah. And, and I mean, they had a really great fight scene. So it, it's like his career has really spanned a lot of the different aspects that we think of, you know, for, for us that like this, this, this air action, you know, that this – this niche of, of, of action films, the direct-to-video films, it's almost like he hits all of the, he ticks off all the boxes for us. And the, the, one of the biggest surprises I had was when I was uh, buying a film, um, one of the Hong Kong films um, I got on VCD, it's called um, uh, Mission of Justice. And yeah. I got that because it's a Moon Lee film and a Yukari Oshima film. And I, imagine my surprise when in the pre, pre-credit sequence, I see this long blonde-haired guy get his ass handed to him before the before the titles of the film. And if you look at it on on IMDb, he's credited as martial artist in prologue. Right. It's just amazing. And I had no, I didn't have a clue he was coming. Yeah, and for people who haven't seen that, it is on YouTube, so you can you can look that up on YouTube. And obviously, like you said, he it, it, he's just martial artist in the prologue. Um, <laughs> but it is it is amazing to see that that it's just like. There he is, you know, and, and, and it's a great scene, too. Um, and I think it kind of speaks to where he was at that time. I mean, he was he was not quite 30. I guess he would have been like like not, maybe 29, something like that. It was so he, 1992, so probably just, yes. yeah, just 29, yeah. And, and so it, it, it feels like he was just kind of like, I'll take anything. I mean, I mean, I forgot, too, he did two films with Albert Pion as well. So it's like he's, he's kind of worked with everybody or he's kind of just done everything. Uh, and of course, we, you know, he was in the Expendables. He was in the the, the first Expendables film. Um, yep. I think we would have liked to have seen him get a bigger part, maybe in that. But yeah. he was at least in it. Uh, so, you know, it's it's it, it's 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 been quite a career for him. Like I think for us as DTV fans, I'm, you know, again, people quite you know are, are surprised to find out that he's you know he's going to now be the, the the second person with fifty films. That he's only second to Dolph, but he you know after Dolph he has the most films on the site but when you look at his IMDB bio and you look at that career that he's had with all of his films it actually makes sense like he's he's been he's done so many different types of movies with so many different uh, directors and um and studios that that it, it actually makes sense that he has that many yeah and when you look at you know the people he's worked with as well like uh he's worked with all of the other action stars that we talk about like he was in submerged with Seagal um, and you know, I guess one to he, he'd probably want to forget, and I guess Dolph wants to forget it as well. Uh, retrograde, which is yeah. just shocker, but you know he's he's worked with everybody. Yeah, I think the only person he hasn't worked with is is Van Damme. I think that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, I think he's done everybody. I mean, he's worked with he worked. He, I guess he he didn't technically work with Scott Adkins in Zero Tolerance. I think. Oh uh, yeah. Um, stuck in like cut and paste job i think <laughs> right i think adkins scenes were added after so maybe that's the next one we need to see is we need to see him and and adkins do a, a film together uh but you're right i mean i think pretty much everybody else um i i guess his 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 work with um 
Cynthia Rothrock was only in that film, uh, Santa's Summer House, which I haven't seen yet. But No, I haven't seen that, no. It, yeah. it, it kind of puts me off by its name. Right, exactly. I feel like I might have to do it like a holiday theme, you know, at some point. Because it's got him, it's got Rothrock, I think it's got Daniel Bernhardt in it. Um, it's, oh, so, wow. you know, <laughs> Yeah, it's, sometimes with those names, it's like, you, you, I don't have any choice, I just have to do those movies. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, I... I you're right. He's he's worked with everybody. He's 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 done just he's kind of worked everywhere as well. I mean, he's done films in in Eastern Europe. He's done them in Thailand, Philippines, um, obviously in Hollywood when he was working with um, PM Entertainment. Um, you know, I, one thing that I thought was really cool about this movie and I Am Vengeance is we actually get to see him in England. Um, is yeah. that, you know, uh, I think I think I Am Vengeance does more to actually place him in England. I think that movie is more of an English film whereas i guess the, the only scene that he really has in this that makes me really feel like england is when he's talking to um that that uh that guy um that that guy who's who's posing as a, as a, a modeling agent um played by alan ford um, oh god we haven't even talked about alan ford yet uh, yes alan ford has one scene in the film and it is fantastic and like the way he's like kind of berating gary daniels because he thinks gary daniels is some kind of like two-bit punk that's in there to harass him about stuff like all of the yeah. lines that he says to him are just I, mean, it, I think it's probably the most most um uk scene in the film for a film that, that, that's shot and takes place in the uk i mean half half of alan ford's dialogue from this scene was you know it, it was basically brick top from snatch it, it was i think alan ford can only play one role <laughs> right, right. It's it was almost like it was almost like he's sitting behind this this you know him and, and Daniels are sitting across from each other on this desk and he's almost like gritting his teeth when he's talking to him like he's just waiting to be Bricktop right he's just waiting to to be that <laughs> that character it's like once Daniel says the wrong thing that's it he just becomes that and it's yes it's, exactly you know, it, yeah it it was it was it was it, I, I wonder if he even wrote his own dialogue if he just wanted to you know it, you know just 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 tell him all you know it, it was like almost like he if he maybe improvised it or something like that but um I, I think it was for, for for Gary Daniels it's almost like he's 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 English but he's never really in anything that 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 I don't know there's there's never any a, a sign that he's in anything that either takes advantage you know, I guess the the only thing I can think of is um Queen's Messenger right where he's um you know uh, English Secret Service, but for the most part, he's it, 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 to the fact that he's English isn't really a part of the film. Um, no, exactly. That's a good point, actually. I hadn't really thought about that. He doesn't he doesn't focus on it, whereas half of Scott's films, you know, they're in England or he just keeps the accent. Yeah, well, yes, you, you, you know, I think that's one thing. I, I've I'd heard some people complain that like Avengement, they had trouble understanding what was being said in Avengement, but I think it's it's I I prefer it that way. I think there's this there was this this fear. Um, for such a long time that if you make a UK movie uh, and, and you, you, you make it too UK that it won't sell in American audiences. And I think Avengement maybe showed that, no, you, you, you just make the movie and, you know, Americans will deal with it. Um, and and I wonder if maybe that was the kind of thing with, with Gary Daniels was like the, that the movies that he was making, there was a fear of making them too UK for American audiences that, you know, I think there's a, a still a sense that Americans can't handle things and so they, they they have to tone tone down whatever you know for, for us as americans we can't you know we, we we can't handle it if it's not american enough for us i guess and i, I hopefully scott atkins the, the films he's doing with jesse v johnson um and and of course the i am vengeance movies as well like they're showing audiences that no we we can handle it if, it, if it's set in the uk and if they're, they're using slang terms that aren't aren't popular here in the u.s 
Yeah, I mean, and, and Scott's generally good for that, but uh, yeah, then then he's done that um, sci-fi film Incoming. I think it was Incoming, mm-hmm. uh, where he pops on the American accent, and I was just thrown like, oh, this isn't right, and it was all downhill from there anyway. Yeah, and I, I, I you know, one of the things I liked about um, the Debt Collector movies was that there was no real explanation for why he's in the United States with, with yeah. his English accent. And I'd rather that, you know, I'd rather there be, you know, like, so if he's got his, his, his natural uh, English accent in incoming, but he's still working for the U S government, I'd rather that than him try, you know, having to affect an American accent. Cause I, I think you know, it's the, the, the same complaint that I have with Luke Goss is that, if, oh, yeah. if you give them an American accent, Luke Goss, I think it's worse than, than Atkins because Atkins still has the, the fighting ability. But with Luke Goss, when he has an American accent, he might as well just be any other American character actor doing direct-to-video movies here in the United States. Yeah. And so it's like what you know, like you think of like The Hard Way is a, is a good example. Like he didn't really need to be American in that movie, and you could just replace him with any number of actors when he's American. But if he's using his, his actual you know uh, English accent, it adds something to the film. It it makes the film a little bit better in in that sense. And yeah, one thing I guess we could talk about with Gary Daniels, he's never affected an American accent, as far as I can tell. No, nothing I can think of. Yeah, and and I, I think you know I don't I, I mean I don't know if maybe he tried to once and it didn't sound good I don't know if he if he wasn't able to maybe he'll do it in that Santa movie right yes maybe that's maybe that's the one I mean I mean he was in that wrong child movie um, where he's you know he's, he's he's married to Vivica A Fox and you know they don't even talk about the fact that he's from England and that and he just you know he has his accent and that's it and everybody's fine with it and um, I think that's that's maybe the thing people need to understand is that we're okay with, you know we don't need to understand why some remember remember with all the Van Damme movies they'd have to come up with like reasons why he was speaking French right, like he's he was French from, <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> from Quebec oh it's uh, you know he's 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 uh, Creole in, in Louisiana which they don't they don't speak French like that down there and it's you know um, yeah they, they always had to come up with a reason why he had an accent and I think finally. They just gave it up and just said, "Okay, you know, it doesn't matter." It doesn't matter. No. <laughs> have you seen um, Have you seen the Gary Daniels film uh, "Forced to Fight"? Yes, yes. That, that's Weller. the with Peter Weller. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That that's one that I was thinking as well when I was watching um, uh, when I was watching Skin Traffic. That um, "Forced to Fight" is another when he is really putting in the. Yeah, you know, he's really putting in his all for the role. I got that from Force to Fight. Yeah, and, and one thing, if you look at his um, IMDb bio at that time, that's where you start to see like the Santa Summer House. Um, he was doing Christian films with like which Eric Roberts does as well. Mm. And and I couldn't find anywhere online that said anything about Gary Daniels' faith or, or him being specifically you know Christian. Um, or, you know, at least it, like sort of being it at that level that he'd be doing Christian movies. So I think it was more of him taking the work, you know, that he was he was that was the yeah, work that he yeah, was exactly. giving. And and so I wonder if Forced to Fight, right, when, when I look at that one, um, you know, it, it kind of in that mix of films where it was like, OK, I'm actually being given an action role here. I'm being given a, a film where I get to be the lead. I, I want to take advantage of this. I want to do the best that I can with this. And. I think you're right about that because it does show in the action. Like we, we get something that is really high quality and maybe that's part of it too, is that, you know, if you're, you're, you know, you're fighting for your paycheck, you're going to really bring it. You know, if, if, if he's looking at his, his, you know, the calls he's getting from his agent and they're like, you know, going to Thailand to shoot three Christian films, you know, yeah, I get this film where I get to actually still be an action star at that level. I'm going to really bring it. 
Yeah, and he does. I think it's quite an underrated film. And yeah, sure, it's. I mean, it's even called Forced to Fight. Right. It, it's like it's it's action movie plot number three. Right. <laughs> yes. <It's, laughs> um, but it's got Peter Weller as a bad guy, and and you know, what else do you want? This is it's it's a good fun film. It's um it, it's maybe ten minutes too long, but um yeah, Forced to Fight. That's that's a good one. Yeah, and I think for me, I think I gave that one a bit of a hard time because I think the the, the the way the plot played out, I didn't like aspects of it, I think. But then I think I kind of, you know, as the, the 2010s went on and we didn't get a lot of really great movies in the 2010s for yeah, direct-to-video yeah. action, I realized there were a lot of movies like that that I probably was harder on in 2011 that I, you know, or, you know that, that period that I, I, I go back and look at and say, you know what, no, those, you know, I, I was lucky to have Forced to Fight <laughs> with what we, we ended up getting throughout that decade. Yeah, I mean, and another one where I think we're lucky to have is actually really good is um, is Hunt to Kill with Steve yeah. Austin, you know, and that's got Eric Roberts as well, and obviously Gary Daniels. Um, and that was uh, twenty ten, I think. Um, that's I, I want to see more films like that. Yeah, and and you know that's a movie where I think because I think you know um, Daniels and and Austin met on the set of The Expendables, and then. I think Daniels was shooting Game of Death at that time. The, um, oh, yeah, with Snipes. Yes, I think I think they're around the same time, and I think he was shooting Game of Death, and I think that was like kind of in Michigan, kind of you know, um, sort sort of again, you know, north central United States. But I think Austin called him to see if he wanted to be on Hunt to Kill, if if he would be oh. interested in doing that one. And so he came on. I think he actually um, he, he had the scenes he had, but I think he was also fight choreographer on that one. Um, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I think that's kind of you know I think that's another thing with Daniels is that you when you when you see some of the interviews or you know the things that he talks about is that like I think he builds up these friendships with with actors that he works with in these films and you know it, it when they 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 ask for favors or they, they they ask about working with him again I think he's excited to kind of you know yeah I, I, you know jump at that opportunity which I think is a really cool thing that like okay Stone Cold Steve Austin calls me to you know do his film I'm going to go over there and do that and you know. Um, I, I think he was the fight choreographer for it, which I think uh, enhanced that, that that film a little bit as well. Yeah, and it's it's another Keone Waxman film as well, so it's pretty hard hitting action, and um, it uh, yeah, it's it's just a just a solid film that um, came out in 2010 when we were not really getting that many good quality DTV action films. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was, yeah, and, and I think that's the other thing too for me is that. Um, it was one of those things where I, you know, again, at, at 2010, I thought that one, you know, had, had issues or there were problems with it. But then I've come back to it and said, you know, okay, yeah, because the, 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 the 2010s as a decade overall for DTV action was not great. It seems like it's gotten better now. It seems like the end of the decade and, and you know, kind of now we're getting more really good quality stuff. But um I think I appreciate those movies a little bit more now than I did, you know, in, in 2011 when I was watching them and I was still kind of, you know, you know, the, you know, we, we, I mean, we had some really good stuff at the beginning, you know, it's kind of the end of the 2000s. Um, but I think, you know, with what we're getting now, where we're getting a lot of films that are heavily edited, um, I think, you know, Keanu Oxen is a really great example. You know, he works mm. with Seagal a lot and I think he has to, he has to make a movie the way Seagal wants him to make a movie. Um, I always yeah. joke that he's yeah. the Seagal whisperer, right? Because he, <laughs> he, gets, he gets the most out of Seagal. But it feels like a movie like Hunt to Kill or we were talking about The Hard Way, which was directed by Keone Waxman. Yes, it was, yeah. 
Yeah, it feels like when he gets a cast and crew that's invested like that, he really gets something extra out of that movie that, you know, it's when he's not having to deal with sort of the constraints of working with Seagal, you you, you get something really inspired from him. And I think we don't think of Keone Wax maybe the way we would think of like a Jesse V. Johnson or Isaac Florentine. Um, But maybe part of that is because a lot of the movies that he's doing, he's working with Seagal and he's got certain constraints that he has to work under um, to make a movie the way Seagal wants it made. Yeah, well, he wants them made, so he's sitting down the whole time. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and, and I mean, there, there's certain rules, right? He can't lose. Um, there, there's always somebody who's, yeah. like, sort of carrying the film, right? Like, I think Absolution had um, Byron Mann carrying the movie, or Bren Foster carries them a lot when, when you know. And so there's that aspect as well. So it's almost like Keone Waxman has to, like, kind of get as much as he can at Seagal and then, you know, use this other actor, this actual action star that's, like, you know, going to do all the heavy lifting for him. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think as well when when we're thinking about the um, the period um, when Hunt to Kill was out, you know, that was as you said, it's off the back of the Expendables, and then things started to started to move a bit more. I think the Expendables might have helped push uh, some more action films to come out. But um, if you think about you know the the few years before that, um, you know, two thousand and seven, eight, nine, the the real star that was still kicking through it was Dolph Lundgren. Yeah. I mean, we got, you know, direct contact, command performance. Uh, we got a new Universal Soldier movie. Like, and this was all just before 2010. Yeah. And one thing that's interesting, um, I had talked with um, uh, Sean Malloy, who does a, a podcast all about Dolph Lundgren films. I must break this podcast. And he was talking about how, you know, it was really great. And actually, if you don't, if you haven't checked that podcast out, it's really great because he talks to a lot of people that work in the industry around Dolph movies. Um, and one of the people he talks to is um, this producer, Benjamin Sachs, who not only does has done some Dolph movies, but he's actually produced a lot of those Keone Waxman Seagal films as well. Right. So uh, he has some really great stories behind the scenes about working with Seagal. So, yeah, if you, you know, I must break this podcast on iTunes. If you, if you haven't checked it out, it's really good. Oh, definitely check that one out. Sounds great. Yeah, and he talked about um, in that period when Seagal, Van Damme, uh, Wesley Snipes, actors like that start kind of moving into the DTV realm from the big screen, mm. how, um, you know, Van, um, Dolph was doing a lot of really bad films in that kind of, you know, early 2000s period. And he almost takes more of a, a, an active role in, in the way his films were being made, where he was he was directing more of them or he was, you know, acting as executive producer. And it felt like maybe he was, you know, as we get into that period in the late 2000s, you know, with command performance and, and those kinds of movies, he, he he was sort of having more of a hand in how those were made. I think. Yeah, you know, that's, that's really true. Like once we get past retrograde, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, we had the mechanic. Yes, and that that thing's awesome. Um, you know, Missionary Man's pretty good. Um, I, uh, I, I wouldn't say Diamond Dogs is that good, but you know, you can't win them all. Right, right. Yeah, that one was a bit of a rough one, but but you you know, it, it it seems like he has more hits than misses at that period. And at the same time, I think it's when Gary Daniels also is starting to get squeezed out, and I think maybe he didn't have the reputation in Hollywood the way Dolph did, where he still had that he was in Rocky four. He still had that. He was in masters of the universe. Yeah. He, he yeah. even still picture film because, you know, even in the early, you know, in the, 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 the late two thousands, we still hadn't gotten to like the Marvel cinematic universe yet, where it was like these, you know, where Iron Man had become successful. Uh, we were kind of just starting to get there. So I think there was still a sense that like Dolph's Punisher was the Punisher. I think we still have that. Sense. Still is. 
Yeah, we still feel like he's the the Punisher, but I think there's been this whole slew of Marvel movies since where there's this idea of what Marvel movies could be. And I think at that time, we we didn't really know what Marvel could be. And um, so I think he still had that Punisher thing that he could kind of lean on. I think now, I I mean, you know, we still think of the Punisher so great, but I think there's now there's a sense in Hollywood that these Marvel Cinematic Universe movies are like a, a step above those those you know, 90s Marvel iterations that, that, that we enjoy. Um, but, but I think, you know, j- just, you know, on that point, like Dolph had more, more pull um, to, to be able to have more of an active role in how he wanted his films to be made. Whereas I think Daniels, when we get into that period, you know, where, where PM is, is collapsing in the, two th- in the early 2000s and he's trying to, you know, get roles. I don't think he had the ability to say, oh, I want to direct this or, I want to say how this is going. I think, you know, now he does a little bit more. I think he does more fight choreography and he does more of that. But I think the way that Dolph was able to sort of salvage things and, and put out really good things while everybody was getting squeezed out, you know, Daniels didn't have that to, to, to lean on. And so he got squeezed out in a way that he ended up having to go to Thailand and shoot films that I don't think he wanted to shoot. And you, you get some of those, those duds in his career that I don't know if we would have had if he had been able to maybe had more, more say in how he wanted things to go. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, now I guess at this point we're, we're, we're closing in. I can't believe we're already closing in on almost two hours here. So maybe it's a, a good time <laughs> to wrap this up. But uh, b- before we do wrap it up, Simon, um, uh, any any final thoughts on, on, on Daniels or his career, or even on the, the film we were talking about? Um, well, I mean, on, on skin traffic, I mean, I think I think we sort of covered it all. It's yeah. it's a, it's a solid film. It suffers from budget. Um, some of its you know effects are not great, but um, there's a lot of heart in the performance from Gary and um, that's what really holds the thing together. I mean, a lot of the, you know, the secondary actors, like uh, the scenes with Daryl Hannah and Michael Madsen, I just sort of laugh through, um, <laughs> you know, and um, obviously, you know, we, we laugh our way through Bricktop as well, but, um, you know, Gary's really, really giving his all in the film. And um, I think it just shows in the final product that, you know, the first 10, 15 minutes I was watching it, you know, it, it was overly bright and, you know, it was just, oh, this is this is feeling really cheap. But you quickly get past that because his performance is so strong. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I think it's – it's the, the movie, like you said, the, the, it has budgetary issues. Um, the plot kind of gets a little bit away from it um, with, with sort of conspiracy theories and things like that and mm. all that. But it's like you've got Daniels who's really, really wants to show – that he's he really has it that he's still a viable action lead and and he more than than produces and then like you said you get these scenes with people like madsen and daryl hannah or you know bricktop or, or, or eric roberts that sort of fill out the movie right when we when, you know because i think you know you, you can't just have fight scenes every every you know i mean it'd be nice to have a whole just a whole movie of just fight scenes but you know they, they have to sort of have the ebb and flow and it was nice to have those actors filling in the the the, 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 the low points i agree and and if you hadn't read the list, of the, you know, the cast, right. and it, it's just sort of like a surprise each time you watch it, you go, oh, oh, hello, Mickey Rourke's just shown up. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, the, 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 the scene where, where, you know, Daniel sort of liberates the, the brothel, you know, sort of goes in there, yep. cleans out all the baddies that are in there. And then he gets on the phone and the first person he calls is Eric Roberts, you know, and it's just... <laughs> it just keeps on, you know, it's, it's like peeling away a banana. It's just... <laughs> right. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that's the kind of movie that, you know, we used to, we, we, we talked about how much we enjoyed in the 90s, you know, where you'd see all, you know, you watch a PM film that had like five people in it, you know, that you, you recognize and how, how much fun that was. You know, this movie does it the right way. I think, you know, we, we think of so many movies where it's just like, here's, you know, Bruce Willis mailing it in for a scene or something like that. Um, this movie does it in a way that's really fun. So these, these people are not just sort of cheap filler, just, you know, put their name on the tin and they're only in it for a second. The movie does a good job of sort of spreading out their parts. So, so even though Eric Roberts is only in one or one or two locations, he's in the film enough that, that you, you get enjoyment out of it when he's there. And then again, you know, uh, Daniels is fighting just underpins the whole thing. Yeah, I agree. And um, I think as well, what I really enjoy about it is, um, and I don't know if you, if you got to see this when you're watching it on streaming, the DVD cover of this film is spectacular. It's, it's got eight heads inside an exploding mushroom cloud, and there's a, there's a giant fireball, and there's a helicopter. I don't remember there being a helicopter in the film, but there's a there's a helicopter in the fireball. There's it's just a giant gun, things on fire. It's everything you want. Yeah. So there's two different covers. Um, so I think I think the streaming service has the cover you're talking about. There's another cover that's just like Daniel's kind of you know in a in a black suit. Um, uh, with sunglasses oh, on. Yeah, the IMDb cover. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's that one, and then I think you're right. I think the streaming um, service actually does have that version. The um, the um, the one that you're talking about, where it's like yeah. all the heads are there, and um, yeah, it, it, it's interesting because I think. It, for, from a film standpoint, I think you know from the streaming service, that's the version that they want because they want you to see all of the heads. They want you to see all the because that, that's the thing that's going to get you to stream it. Whereas um, I guess maybe from the DVD version, you, you've got time to read the cover, I guess, and read all the names. Yeah, well, I mean, at least with the the DVD that we got, the Australian DVD, we have that you know the fireball cover, and the the names are in they're so small at the top, they're not even you know, getting you to look at that. But they're hoping you're going to look at it and go, I know that guy. He was in Kill Bill. I know that guy, you know, he, he was in, um, he was in Snatch and, and yeah, you buy the film. Yeah, actually it's, um, the, the letterboxed, uh, entry for it has that. Oh, um, right. Yeah. The, the letterbox one has the one you're talking about with, um, with, with sort of all the heads and yeah, you could, I mean, I mean, Mickey Rourke's head is probably disproportionately large for the, 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 <laughs> the what he had, his role in the film. Um, yeah, but he was yeah, the cigar. He was the cigar in this film. He just sat there, and, right. and at the end, he had the final line. Right, because I think they're sort of teasing a potential sequel to this. I think is what it is. Um, but um, I, I don't see that happening. It's, it's been five years since this film, or five, four or five years since this came out, and uh, it, we we haven't heard anything about a sequel. So um, I think it's one of those things where the budget, you know, the, the studio is okay with one movie, but you know, try to get two out of us, it's not going to work. Yeah, exactly. I don't think we're going to get a, a skin traffic too, but the one the one thing I am looking forward to checking out, I've got it on my way, is, and I maybe you've seen it, hopefully it's good, um, the director did uh, Instant Death with Lou Ferringo. Oh, I haven't seen that, no. I, that would be, is, it, is it a more recent movie? He did that just after skin traffic, it's 2017. Wow. Uh, and it's got Lou on the cover in a, you know, a, a black coat holding a pistol. Um, I'm hoping for a good time. That sounds pretty fantastic. I have not been really watching Lou Ferrigno's stuff. Um, I know he's been doing more stuff recently, and um, I haven't 
I haven't really been catching up with it as much. I see the cover. That looks fantastic. It that does, looks, doesn't it? It looks amazing. Yeah, yeah no, I've not really been following um, his recent films either, but, uh, you know, when I saw that cover, it, it sold me, so it's on its way. I'll be curious to hear how that one goes, and maybe I'll, I'll try to catch it as well. Maybe it's, it's, it's streaming here in the U.S. on something. Um, but, yeah, we'll have to, have to check that one out. Um, well, yeah, I guess at this point, Simon, where can people find you on, online in terms of social media and whatnot? Sure. Well, the blog's still there. I do, unfortunately, not update it too much, but that's explosiveaction.com. Um, I've still got, you know, a decade of reviews there, and hopefully I'll get to get some more in there as well. Um, but if you just put Explosive Action into anything, uh, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube, and you'll find me there. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. I love um, the um, the... Your YouTube page is fantastic because it's just like it, the different hall. I mean, your Instagram page is great too because it, it kind of shows the different halls that you've made and the stuff that you've picked up. Um, it's always really cool. But I think the, the YouTube channel is great just because, like, you, you know, it, um, like, like with Secret of King Mahi's Island, you're able to kind of show the box art and, and some clips from the film. And uh, yeah, if people are not, they, they, they should definitely subscribe to the YouTube channel and, and follow you on Instagram and social and all that as well. And uh, I think I've got the link to your site on my, my page. So, um, so at least that is there. Yeah, that's good because uh, I have a link to yours on mine as well. All right, excellent. Well, well, thank you again for coming on. So I'm actually just quickly plug for for me. Um, as, as you know, everybody, uh, D, uh, dtvconnoisseur.blogspot.com. That's where everything is, so you can find everything there. But thank you again, Simon, for coming on. This was a really fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you for having me. I, I'll come back again. All right, thank you everybody for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.